This podcast is made for people like you. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening. Welcome to the GMS Magazine podcast. This is the boardroom, the room in which me, Paco Garcia, and my absolutely delightful host, Chris Diaz, get to talk about the best things on board games. Be quiet, please. Well, hello, sir. How are you doing? Oh, one sec. That was very punctual. Yeah, that's incredible. It's like 11 o'clock, exactly. <laughs> hello, can you hear me now? Yes, we, we can. Can. <laughs> can you hear us? I can, I can. Oh, that's exciting. Nice to, yeah, nice yeah. To, to see you guys. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing very well. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I, I feel like I feel like I know you because I just I see you on your on your channel. I see you on certain videos. It's you're probably one of the more uh, one of the more public uh, game publishers out there. You yeah, I like to I like to talk about games. So <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, so I guess I well I'll probably run this because I know where we only have you for a short window. So we'll we'll run through very quickly. We'll try to be very efficient with your time. Okay. And not cool. ramble about about how much I love your games and, and <laughs> if you're throwing out like I have some of your games right behind me right now. Uh, and I, I, I do want to say, so I think we're going to hit up on obviously you got a new a new game coming out relating to viticulture. Uh, yes. We'll talk about wine maybe a little bit because I know you don't drink it. <laughs> I drink some wine. I drink red wine, but it's not my preferred alcoholic beverage. Yeah, because I, I, because I, I did a, when I was with the Die Tower, I did a very, a very extensive retrospective on on viticulture, about an hour long, um, and those kind of content uh, you don't see that very often because it was yeah. it was framed around me going on a wine tour through Okanagan wine country, and uh, so I was basically going to all the wineries and talking about the game step by step, and and I had a script with a wine that I would read the script, go to another winery, record more footage, go to another winery, record more footage. And wow. then I just I only got Tuscany after the fact, so I went to another winery and shot some more stuff. <laughs> so it ended up being about an hour long, and part of it was me I was going to try to include you in it, and you said, "Well, I don't really drink wine," and I'm like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> I could have, as a gag, I could have had some for the, for the for the show. I could have done it. I had some just the other day. I, I drink I drink red wine every now and then. Where do you pitch your tent, sir? Like where do you, uh, where where do you reside? Like I'm stay? In St. Are you? Louis. You're in St. Louis. There's not a lot of wine country in St. Louis, or is there? There is actually some Missouri wine, but it's 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 more for I don't know. It's not highly acclaimed. <laughs> well, you, you don't see, you don't see like highly acclaimed, <laughs> extremely well known of Missouri wine country. Right, right. Yeah. It's like California, Napa, even Okanagan has a bit of a reputation. France and then Missouri. And Missouri. Yeah. But that being said, kinds of climate change. These regions, these northern regions, are getting a lot more popular. That's true. Yeah. That's so, true. Um, I mean, this is um, we talked, like I said. Uh, so, your wine taste aside, uh, do you think you owe everyone who plays viticulture an apology for the fact that you don't drink wine yourself? <laughs> <laughs> did you do any research for it, by the way? Like, did you ever go to a winery and figure it out, or? Oh yeah, I've been to wineries. Um, oh yeah. And when I was originally designing viticulture, I, I researched the winemaking process quite a bit. It was fascinating to learn about it. Um, 
I would say this. That's, there are probably plenty of games where you could interview the designer and they don't like actually make cars for a living. Like Vitalis sort of didn't make cars. Didn't he? To design no, but he's Portuguese. Oh, he is Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can say I, he is Portuguese. I can see, definitely see there was a passion involved when he did uh, Vinyos. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which I also own, uh, but it weighs 45 pounds, so I don't like moving it. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I, I look at it and go, hmm, I don't recall rosé requiring the mixing of red and white. Because if I remember wine, red rosé is not made by mixing white and red. I... Um, oh, that um, actually surprised me. That's a, a real thing. Like, I, I wasn't expecting that either. either. But it, yeah, but I, maybe there are different types of rosés that are made in different ways. But yeah. um, that was one of the, the ways I found that they make it in, in, in Italy, at least. Have, you, have yeah. you been to Italy? Did you go to Tuscany? I should have gone to Tuscany. I was on a much bigger budget back then than I am now. So maybe maybe someday now I, I will use my, my wingspan money and go over to Tuscany. <laughs> well, it, uh, for, uh, ironically, I have been to Tuscany. Yeah, okay. They, they make very good olive oil. Uh, their wine Ooh. is okay, but they make it's very okay. good olive oil. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, it, I think I, I always talk about Okanagan wine country. I'm very, very much a, a proponent of Okanagan wine country. It's got about 200 wineries in a very small stretch of road. Oh, wow. So. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of now, you have we'll talk about it now. Uh, you have a game, uh, an expansion yep. called Viticulture World. Yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, and do you do you need me to record anything while we're doing this, or or we? I'm re I'm recording everything at the moment, so we should yeah. be alright. So you just relax and have a good time, basically. Cool. Yeah. So Viticulture World, it kind of actually ties into the 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 way you've started this discussion, which is that there are lots of places around the world that make wine where people could be making wine. And so we decided to move away from only letting players make wine in Tuscany to let them make wine on any continent. So like, uh, so you're still using, you're using, a, you got a new board. Yes. Yeah. A new, new board, board. Uh, but you still require the base game. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it is. We, we debated <clears throat> making it a standalone expansion, but so many components would have been redundant. Like we would have had to just include the vineyard mats that a lot of people already have the workers, the structure tokens that people already have, the vine cards, the wine orders, the visitors. Like we would have reprinted so much. So we decided we could keep the price a lot lower for people if we just made it uh, a separate expand, a, a, a non-standalone expansion. Oh, yeah. And also viticulture is so ubiquitous. You can get it basically everywhere. Yeah. Um, the other thing then is that it's a, this is a cooperative expansion. Yeah. What made you go that direction? I was partially inspired by Orleone's invasion and... Uh, what they did with it. I love Orleans and I, I really like how they added this cooperative element to a Euro game. And I, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I want to do something different because we've done a lot of things with viticulture expansions. I didn't want to do another one where we just add some more cards or Tuscany already does. I think what most people want from an expansion for viticulture. And so, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to do something different with it and let players work together, but still keep that rewarding build your own vineyard feel uh, to the to the game, so it's not like a, it, you know, there's so many um, cooperative games where there's an antagonistic AI. I didn't want it to be that type of of cooperative game. Well, I, yeah, I absolutely like when like I said when I saw when I heard about it, I'm like, oh, this is nice. I heard it was cooperative. I'm like, oh, thank God. It's only so often you can do more competitive expansions, yeah. um, before you hit it. So why like what makes this different? What what makes this viticulture world? Well, part of it is the, the the continent part of it, where you're you're going around to different continents, uh, or you're not actually traveling around each, each continent. You play through 
you, whenever you sit down to play, you choose a continent and you play in that continent. And that translates to an event deck of cards that's unique to that continent. Um, and many of those uh, sets of cards also have another set of cards that they link to. For example, in North America, you put some cards on the table that line up to create a, a little bit of a tech track that you can advance on using some fame that you're earning from the North American event cards. And so each continent has its own little mini game happening. Um, and I've compared it a little bit to Spirit Island in that whenever in Spirit Island, you play against different colonizing nations, essentially, and they have their own little twist to them. And so each continent in the world has, has its own little twist to it, its own little set of mechanisms that are unique to that continent. I saw an image that, that there are different boxes inside this expansion. Is this kind of like a campaign similar to the way uh, Scythe did with uh, Fenris? Or is this, you can open up any box in any order? Or is there a suggested order of opening these these boxes? They're, yeah, they're not exactly tuck boxes, <clears throat> but they are like kind of pre-bound decks of continent cards. Um, you, I think many people will play through them in the order of difficulty. So they'll start at the introductory continent or even the, the first game promo that we're including and then go easy and medium and hard uh, through the continents. But you really could jump to any of them at any time. So if you're fascinated by the history of winemaking in Asia, you could jump right to that continent. It's the hardest one, it would be difficult, but you can, or it's one of the harder ones. And, and you could uh, you could play that if you wanted to. So there isn't a set campaign in the way that we do with Rise of Fenris where there's an ongoing story throughout all of them. Um, you yeah. mentioned something that I'm, I'm quite interested in. Uh, you mentioned about people who are interested in, in, in how they make wine in Asia. Have you actually gone and researched how they do what the culture of each continent is regarding wine so you could reflect that accurately in, in the game? Or is it something that you just invented in, in, a, in a fantasy kind of way? No, that was, this was one of the more interesting parts of the process. And I actually wasn't, so I'm not the designer for Viticulture World. Uh, the designers are Mahir, uh, Shaw, and Francesco Destini. And they did a lot of that research. Um, they Very wine researched. names, by the way. <laughs> They're good wine names. Francesco is like, yeah. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, so they, they heavily researched the history of winemaking and the, the current state of winemaking in each of these different continents, each of these different regions. Um, and... I think they made a, a lot of very great decisions to bring that history into the game. There was one problematic element. Did you guys want to talk about that? Are you aware of the? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I do know about it. I, yeah. I, I, I wasn't planning on bringing it up just because okay. I think okay. it's been, no, it's not because I don't want to skirt it. It's because yeah. it's out there. Everybody, anybody yeah. who's curious about it can know about it. But what I wanted to bring up was the fact that, uh, and this is not necessarily, you know, people may say I'm sniffing your throne, but whatever. <laughs> Uh, that I, I will say that I thought you handled it magnificently, both before and post the event. Uh, in fact, your public persona is renowned for uh, how well you um, uh, interact with consumers and social media. Uh, in light of the last few years where several game designers have appeared to stumble into the minefield, so to speak, how do you do that? How do you navigate that network as well as you do? Because you think that would be obvious, but seeing how many designers seem to bang their head against social media, especially in the last few years, it's clearly yeah. not easy. So how can you do it? And how what kind of advice would you give designers and how to skirting these issues and doing it as professionally as you do? Well, I, that's a great question. Um, I'm probably not the best person to answer it because I am one of those designers that has definitely made mistakes related to I mean, that's, it goes beyond social media, but just on a human level, like the way that I've responded to uh, certain questions about why we did or didn't do certain things. 
Um, and I think, I think I've learned, like it's been a couple of years of really learning how to navigate that. And I think part of it is that throughout the entire time that I've been on social media and been a presence for some of our games, I've tried to be a source of positivity um, and I've tried to really listen to people when they're saying things about our games, whether or not I agree or disagree about what, what they're saying. So I think that's part of it. That was a good like starting point. But what I've learned in the last couple of years is A, to just really listen more than I talk. I think that helps a lot. Um, and that uh, in instances where people might, um, might read into something, uh, and my first instinct might, get, might be to get a little defensive about it, to instead just continue to listen to it for a little while and maybe listen to myself as to why I'm feeling defensive. Because oftentimes when I, when I start to get defensive about something, it's because there's, because there's something, some part of some truth in what that person is saying. And I think that's what I've seen a lot of other, some of these designers that you're referring to where they stumble into it, where their instinct is to get defensive because their intentions are probably not necessarily good, but also not probably not necessarily bad. Um, and I think if, if, I, I've just learned if I if I stop a little bit and acknowledge that I'm getting defensive for a reason because there's truth in what the person is saying, that has really helped me um, avoid some things that could have gotten much worse than they were. Yeah, because I've noticing like I've, like my I, my I, I've I've, did, I've published uh, one board game which happens to be right there by the way. Yeah, which is also yeah. wine themed, but wine tourism because I see but there, uh -huh. there was a lot of wine uh, manufacturing games. Obviously, we have vineyards, we have yeah. viticulture. Um, and uh, and a bunch of others, and I felt that we needed a good wine tourism game. So that's what we, most of us are as consumers right. are tourists, uh, yeah. and so I felt that there was a, there was a need. And uh, I, of course, I'm only about six hours away from Naramata Wine Country, so that was something I wanted to develop. But um, I, I can definitely, but my background is in role playing, like Dungeons and Dragons. That's where I make most uh, all my primary income, and the number of designers who who take it really personal when somebody is trying to hat in hand help you is, is surprising how defensive people get. And we've seen numerous designers in just the last few years that does this detonate because they can't handle criticism. And you seem to handle that. But more than that, you're probably the only game designer I know that gives back, that runs a blog about game design, crowdfunding. What prompts that form of interaction? Why do you feel that's important to give back to the community like you do? Part of it, a big part of it is that it just, it feels good. Like every time I, I write two blog posts a week, one on Monday, one on Thursday, and almost every time I write one of those posts, I'm kind of learning as I write. I'm learning about what I actually think about things. I process things best in writing. I learn a lot from the discussion. If there is a, um, if the post is uh, talked about, if people end up talking about it, I learn a lot from the discussion. Um, but in the end, it just I, I feel like oh, I've I've hopefully added something to other people and other other creators, the many other creators who inspire me on a daily basis. And so it it it's not something like. I don't want to spend all my time doing it, but the hour or so I spend on those blog posts every week feels good. It feels right. It feels like a good way to spend that time. And you also, you're the face of the company. And, and sometimes yeah. you're, you're, you're as much selling yourself as well as your, your reputation. Some people buy games based on their designers. Uh, yeah. But on the subject of crowdfunding, you have a rather extensive guide on running Kickstarters, but you don't yeah. run them anymore. That's right. Generally. <laughs> yeah. uh, Compared to many other major companies, especially ones that are up to that same echelon that still do, I respect that. But why? Why did you move away from crowdfunding? Yeah, uh, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why, and, and we, why I originally stopped doing it. I would say the the number one reason why I haven't gone back to it because I still back a lot of projects. I 
love getting wrapped up in the excitement and the anticipation of a new Kickstarter project. And so I miss that part of it as a creator. But the number one reason I haven't come back to it is that I, I really love our current method, which is that we get to, we make a product that we really believe in. Um, we get feedback from our play testers. So it's not in a vacuum. We're getting a lot of feedback from people about that product in secret in advance. We make it. And then when it's, when it has arrived at our fulfillment centers or when it's getting ready to arrive, we announce it. And then a few weeks later, we start to sell it. And then a few weeks later, we get to ship it to people. And having that tight gap um, is just so exciting to me. Like I, I love being able to get excited about something and get people excited about it if they're excited about it and getting it in their hands within two months at most after we start talking about it. And Kickstarter, it's just not, it's not possible to use Kickstarter for that approach. Um, and so that's the number one reason I haven't returned to it. With the interaction that you commonly do, you talking about two blog posts, how do you not blab? Like, how do you just like, you're so excited. How do you go like, I gotta tell you about this. How do you keep, how do you like, cause obviously you're talking about a year, if not more in pre-production, yeah. printing designs and shipping. How do you keep your mouth shut for that long? It's hard. And it, especially since a lot of the time, like the, the game is on my, or whatever we're releasing, it's on my mind. So like when we were working on Viticulture World, mm. I probably did several videos about cooperative games just because they were on my mind. So people might, who, who follow my game design YouTube channel, they might've noticed that I was talking about cooperative games a little bit more during that time. Yeah. Or there's a game I'm working on now, they could probably notice there's a mechanism that I talk a little bit more about now, but they have to like wait a year to really see the payoff for that. So I do, I do let things slip from time to time in those videos or the things that I just end up talking about. Was there a video where you're like, man, I've been reading about this Nikola Tesla guy. He's really fascinating. <laughs> you were like, why are you talking about that? Uh, <laughs> talking about going back to about uh, this blog and Kickstarters and the fact that you, you, know, you no longer run them. Uh, yeah. But one of the things you did mention in one of your blog posts uh, was some of the things you, you've learned and some mm. of the things you pass on. One of them is making sure that your product is as close to completion as possible to show the vast majority of that game design. Uh, yeah. But as someone, once again, that, that does role-playing games where I don't have to do that. Like when I did Naramata, I, needed, I had like a $10,000 pre-budget. I needed to have almost the entire game constructed. And when I, but when I wrote a role-playing game, like, you know, for Affinity, which ran, like raised a hundred grand and so forth, I only needed about 30% of it done. I needed a thousand dollars basically to prep. And, yeah. and, but it board games more than any other thing on crowdfunding, you have to have that much money put forward to have that much design. Yeah. Um, why do you, like, is that, do you think that's appropriate? Like, is it fair that for board games specifically, it's got this high, this much, much higher gate of entry for so it makes it more difficult for independent guys to get on the market because they need to spend so much more money up front. It is. It's a huge caps 22 there because, because one of the wonderful things about Kickstarter for new creators is that it's like a risk mitigation tool or it's meant to be, they can, they can put, they can create something that they're passionate about, but not do a full investment in manufacturing or all, all the art and graphic design, all, all those huge sunk costs up front. Um, if there's actually no demand for it. And so that, that it's a great risk mitigation tool, but I, I think you're right. Like nowadays, if you don't have a really beautiful project that's that's really fleshed out, really developed, looks great, you've already spent quite a bit of money on it, um, it's not gonna succeed anyway. And even then it may not succeed. And then you've wasted all that money. Hopefully that doesn't happen too often, but I think that's a reason that I, I gr heavily encourage creators to basically not do what I do now and keep things secret, to like really put things out there about their 
about their game, especially new creators, to start talking about it and sharing it as early as possible, because that way they can see very early on if people aren't getting excited about it and they won't waste all that time and money for something that people don't actually care about. Speaking about caring stuff, I mean, uh, obviously we just got off through this. I, I didn't say we we're escaping, but we're still in the last lingering shreds of COVID. We had three or four years of COVID. Um, yeah. Obviously it's affected things like game design. It's obviously affected reviews and playtesting because I got a bunch of games off of you a year ago and I've gotten Tapestry and Euphoria and then COVID hit and all my game group was like, I'm like yeah. waiting around going, guys, I got games to run. And uh, how has it affected every facet of your company? How is like, how has that affected you? And how are you, how, what's your situation coming out of this crisis? Yeah. Um, it's taught me a lot about patience. Um, and I think that has rolled over like personally and professionally quite a bit because before COVID, um, I mean, this isn't a good reflection of my character at all, but if, <laughs> if I sent a game to a reviewer and that reviewer didn't actually review it within a few months, I, I might just remove that reviewer from our list from then on. Yeah. Um, but with COVID, I, I, I think I, I really learned I, some lessons about, I think, compassion and patience in regards to that. But where I, I really didn't want people to endanger themselves just to finish a review. I no longer keep track of whether or not reviewers have had a game. So I, I didn't even know that you you had one. I think you mentioned it in an email, but I, I didn't know yeah. that. Well, I, yeah, you, you yeah. asked if people send off the requests when they happen, but yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, when, when you post, I still want to I, I want to know so I can share it and get excited about it. Um, but you don't but watch yeah, so, them yourself. I don't watch them, no, but I do share them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that because you don't want to get you don't want to get angry or happy or or get favoritism? Is that how or you just it's for it's mostly for to avoid well not to, to avoid favoritism, but to I I really want to stay unbiased for reviewers. I kind of acknowledge that I am very human in that if I watch a hugely negative review, that will get under my skin. Like I can't not get under my skin after I put all, all that time and money and, and everything into these games. And so if I just don't watch it, then I can still get a ton of unbiased reviews out there for our games. Um, I wish I could just be completely unbiased, but I know I'm not. So that's how I that's how I deal with it. But when you have a review that's like super positive, like I said, my, my review for the Dice Tower was like 60 minutes of me just going crazy on how much I love Viticulture. <laughs> it was one of the first games my wife and I got into. And and we have, obviously we got Tuscany. I got all the expansions, didn't have put all those boxes out. Uh, so is, is it hard for someone who says, you got to see this review on Viticulture. It's amazing. Or you got to see this review on, you're like, I can't. I'd, like, I'd love to, but I can't. Like, do you resist that urge to see a, a review if somebody tells you to watch it? Uh no, I mean, sometimes I give in to the urge. I mean, it, it feels good to get a compliment, right? Now, is, especially from someone that I respect. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I give in every now and then. And every now and then a reviewer will email me and not just with a link, but say like, Jamie, I love this game. I really love this game. And that feels good to hear. Um, it, I try not to let that impact whether or not I choose that reviewer in the future. Because really, I, even, if, even if a reviewer emails me and says, Jamie, I really didn't like this game, they're going to be on the list too. I don't need to know that necessarily, but some reviewers do tell me that, and I'm okay hearing that. Yeah, like for me, I guess I, I I'll admit that I've I've loved every game. There are a few of them, which is weird too, because I know, for example, and I'll be honest, uh, Tapestry didn't hit me really hard yeah. out of the gate, but it's also, but ironically, it's also the game I played the most in the last uh -huh. year. And it's one of those things, like, and talking about things I love is like, you, you think, oh, this game's really, is, it, there's a bit more randomization. And I made some jokes in my review about the fact that you can go into space, but not master mathematics. Yeah. Um, 
but it's also a game that I love the fact that it has this variable ending. Like the game can mm -hmm. end different at different points for different people. It's like, oh, I, the game's over for me. I'm like, great, just sit aside and wait <laughs> for me to finish. And it was one of the most revolutionary ideas, the fact that there isn't this global static end game point, that the game yeah. could end for Paco, but not for me. Um, yeah. When you design a, or create a game, where does that process start? Do you start with the mechanics or the theme? Or is there an IP you're interested in with Red Rising? Like how, yeah. how does it start? Like, what, what is it? Does it start completely differently for each idea? I would say it's pretty different for every idea. Like, yeah, Red Rising definitely started with the IP. Scythe started when I saw some some art that the artist had started started to make for Scythe. Uh, Euphoria came from a thematic idea. Tapestry came from just my desire to make a Civ game. Actually, Tapestry came came partially from the landmark miniatures in it. I saw a sculptor who was making little buildings for Robinson Crusoe. I think. And I was like, those sculpts look really cool. Like, this is what I want. I want I want these in the in a Civ game. And so I kind of built part of the game around those sculpts with, with that specific sculptor. So yeah, there's there's a different origin story, I would say, for every game. Well, that's fascinating. I, I, for me, I can't see I, I always think thematics come first, but I know mm -hmm. you're talking about Vicenda I know he has a mechanic and idea. Like he thinks of mechanics because there's so much of a uh a, a I can't even think of the word, this kind of um machine he has this brain these complicated mechanics they're like how do you even get to that level of complexity um but i think i got about yours is because every you can you can see the process i can almost see your yeah. brain i go oh i see what he did here i can see why he uh -huh. did this and so forth there's a thematic yeah. connection which i appreciate um Thanks. do we do i still have you or you're are we, are we done are we part of limit or can we keep going let's keep going yeah okay um does the dog speaking... have any questions or, or... <laughs> Well, he, he, the, the question he has is how to avoid the thunderstorms going on, which, and he's very, oh. very scared. That's why he's, he's insisting on being with me. Otherwise, yeah, he would probably be asking, when are you going to make a game about dogs? <laughs> I'm why sure not? We have, there's too, too many cat games out there. We need a dog game. <laughs> and, and too many zombie games as well. So yeah, one about dogs would be great. <laughs> uh, talking about uh, the scythe artist, you brought him up, uh, Jacob Rosalski. Rosalski. Yeah. Um, he designed this. These are. There's been some controversy with him. I, I won't go into it because it's kind of old. Um, I thought it was really surprising. I kind of assumed that you had exclusivity for this artwork, and now we, hmm. we there's this game, Iron Harvest, that's come out, which uses yeah. the exact same artwork. Has there been confusion, IP confusion, going? Is this site the uh, the video game? And you're like, no, it's got nothing to do with me, kind of thing. Like, was there a bit of a miscommunication yeah. in there? I just the other day, someone asked me, did, which came first, Iron Harvest or Scythe? I was like, Scythe came first. Like, it came years before Iron <laughs> Harvest. Come on. Um, so yeah, I only have the tabletop rights to Scythe. And I'm happy for you. I'm really happy for Jakob that he's had this world blossom into a tabletop space, into a digital space. I think there's the potential of like a Netflix show someday, which would be amazing. I hope that happens. Um, all that is his. Uh, I think the one thing I wish from Iron Harvest in particular is that I, I wish they had maybe given maybe a little bit more credit to Scythe. Like it's really buried in their information that there's that side that they based part of the game on Scythe. Yeah. Um, and that would have been nice, a nice to have thing, but it's largely, I'm just happy for Jakob to have a, a pretty cool world in the works and different types of type of media. Yeah. Cause I was, I was like, Oh, so this is just using the same artwork. And then I played the game and I'm like, it seems to be a little bit more than I thought. And I, I didn't realize yeah. how much of Scythe, uh, its theme and how much of its setting was designed by you and how much designed by Jakob. 
and how much commingling there are between these three assets, his IP, your IP, and then Iron Harvests. Yeah, and, and I think that's where my, my, my comment there came in a little bit, because I, I worked very closely with Jakob. He is, definitely the, he is the, definitely the artist, definitely the world builder, but there were lots of areas where I was, I was like, uh, for Scythe, I, I wanted there to be a reason for players to meet in the middle of the map at times. Yeah. And so like we essentially invented the concept of the, of the factory together like that yeah. wasn't in his original idea so i don't even know if that's in iron harvest that, that no, that's not in iron harvest but some of the okay. geopolitical ideas are yeah exactly yeah but um, I'm, I'm, i think it's a yeah did you enjoy the game i haven't actually played iron harvest uh i did not enjjoy iron harvest okay. I, it, there's certain things about the game i like mm -hmm. uh, but i think there's some elements about it i dislike i mean it's got it got some things that got right but then there's some critical mistakes that they've made uh, if they ever did, you, you're talking about the idea of moving it past the uh, physical media to something like uh, you know Netflix or a TV series. Would yeah. you, if you, if they approached you and say, "We want to take this artwork, but we want to use the scythe setting," mm. would you be open to that? And how would you think you would develop a scythe TV show? Well, really, I, I have been approached by literally dozens of producers asking to get the TV and film production rights for scythe, and I always pass them on to Yaka because they aren't my I own the trademark for Scythe, but the world is Jakob's. And so I always pass them through, through to Jakob. If a TV show ended up having like the, the characters that are in Scythe, I don't know, I would just be excited about it. I might try to, if I can get a cut of it, I would, because I'm sure that would make way more money than any of our games ever make. But I, 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 doubt, I doubt even that would be possible. So I would just have to be happy that it's on the screen and that it's probably driving more sales to Scythe and hopefully making Scythe fans really, really happy. That's the number one reason why I want it to happen. Well, yeah, cause it would be weird to have uh, a site TV show that you weren't in somewhat connected to. That feels weird about, like I said, about talking yeah. about people who don't know about how IP and intellectual property works. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, yeah. Do you find, given the success of certain titles like Wingspan, Viticulture, and Scythe, do you think future titles have an unfair microscope applied to them? Like an unhealthy level of hype? Because I know when Tapestry came out, you were just yeah. off of Wingspan, and everyone's like, oh my god, this is the biggest, greatest thing. And I'm like, Guys, the game isn't out yet, <laughs> but right, there was, right. you think that there's potentially a hype engine coming on because of how much Wingspan exploded? Things definitely changed, changed for us after Wingspan exploded, it, mostly in very good ways. It opened a lot of doors. I think it brought a lot of people into the hobby, and it brought people into the Stillmeyer Games family, I think, a lot more than, than before. Um, but it, it, in terms of the, the microscope, there has been... I've seen a, a, a maybe a tonal shift, especially on Board Game Geek. After whenever we announce a new product um, that is distinctly different to before Wingspan and even before Scythe too, I, it almost feels like it started a lot with Scythe. Um, and I don't, I I don't completely understand it, but I th I think the best that I can do is keep trying to make games that bring joy to people, even if even if there is a little bit more. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if hype's the right word. Controversy isn't the right word. Something, something, something's different in, in the tone of those some of those conversations before we launch. Yeah. Well, yeah, there you was know, a ladder yeah. of hype. Like you know, Viticulture yeah. was big, then Scythe yeah. was big, and then Wingspan came out, and never, and you, yeah. like there were other games in there, but there was just yeah. like you like Euphoria was 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 in there, but then there's there's yeah. this climb, and so when Tapestry came out, I just felt like wow, it's like everyone's talking about this like before the game came out. This is the second coming. I'm like. Maybe we should play the game first. Maybe, yeah, uh, you yeah. also mentioned about the uh, success of Wingspan, and you had a blog entry about how you weren't actually pre 
prepared or 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 even ready for success which is yeah. the reason why the game became the hot item because no one could buy it and that was something you brought up specifically and if you want to bring that up again because that was a conversation yeah. that you were very critical about with the uh, uh brick and mortar game stores regarding that or was that more about distribution uh i mean there are lots of different layers to it i think the, the short version of the story was we we I, we were like any game that we make we were very excited about wingspan but we had no idea how it would sell because we don't gauge well we gauge demand but we don't gauge demand through a kickstarter anymore so we don't know exactly what first print run demand is anymore and so uh we thought we had accurately gauged demand for wingspan at ten thousand units and so we made ten thousand units and as it turned out it was really well reviewed and then it sold really well in the in the initial pre-order um i think that and then we made more, of course, like we were making more as soon as those good reviews started came, came out, even before the pre-order, we started making more copies. Um, I think that maybe the, the, the trickiest thing that happened with Wingspan is related, was related to distribution, where uh, a lot of reviewers did not know that how allocated, how heavily allocated they were until release date. For some reason, distributors didn't tell retailers that they didn't have copies for them until release day. And then we got, I got a lot of angry emails that day. Um, as if we were cutting them off from, from those copies. So it was a good lesson learned at the same time. Like I've, I've almost gone too far the other way where now, where now I think we make too many copies of some print first print run games and we end up sitting on those copies for months and months, which I'd also prefer not to do if we could avoid that. It's really tough to hit that, that sweet spot of the perfect amount of first run demand. I, it may not even be possible. We just kind of do our best and, and hopefully cover demand and not go too far over that. Well, that's the whole prospect of, of business. I mean, you've obviously, I, I've taken microeconomics, you've taken microeconomics, I'm sure. And you know the the idea of supply and demand curve. And and yeah. we've seen companies like you know Sony and Nintendo artificially create shortage in order to increase demand. So I'm yeah. sure that was probably some of the accusations that were thrown your way saying, we can keep, we can keep Wingspan at, at its premier price point by limiting how many people copies people can have. I'm sure you might've gotten that. I got that. And that was one of the, the I, I would say, the accusations that stung the most, because if we had known that we could have sold 20,000 copies of Wingspan in the first print run, we would have made 20,000 copies, like absolutely hands down. We weren't trying, like we were selling them for the full price on our web store either way. Um, and we cut off web store sales, I think. So we decided to leave 5,000 for distributors and sell 5,000 ourselves. And so we could have kept selling through those the rest of the distribution copies if we wanted to, but we cut it off. Yeah, I don't know. That that's a that was the most maybe bewildering accusation that came out there. If we because yeah. if we had known, we we definitely would have made them. And I think Wingspan still would have done just as well as it ended up doing on its own merit. Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Like with Tapestry, which was the subsequent production, I I, mm -hmm. I have a review copy, which was a first print run of twenty five thousand. So I can yes. see like, yeah. you're like, okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you ever have issues given like? This is one of those things where I always feel that Stonemaier very much trailblazes an, an idea. Like you're always, you're not sitting in your laurels either. You do viticulture, then you put out minis with Scythe. You have this big card game with Wingspan, which is very thematic, which has an educational element, which a lot of people kind of miss out on. And then you go with Tapestry, which these full color minis. Uh, do you ever get worried that your ideas like your mechanics, they're, they are trailbla trailblazers, but do you ever worry that people emulate mechanics or your theme? Like I said, I've gotten a few people accusing my game Neuromata ripping off Viticulture, even though they have nothing <laughs> mechanically in common. I one guy was like, oh, it's just like Viticulture. I'm like, no, like, no, 
I'm a Takedo ripoff. I'll fully admit it. I'm a Takedo <laughs> ripoff. But do you ever get worried that um, of, of, of like, because some people are talking about ripping off and IP theft and so forth. And in the game industry, yeah. it seems like it's complete. It's a giant booyah base where everyone gets to uh, toy from. Is that what you think? Or like, do you ever get worried that people are going to take your ideas and run off with them or? No, never. I, I like, I like the analogy to the booyah base. Like there's, it's just a big mesh of, you know, all the games that I've ever played, they go into every design that I make. I'm thinking about all those different mechanisms that work and don't work. Every one of my games is heavily inspired by different elements of other games. And I, I it's flattering when I hear about another game that uses uh, like any of the systems from it, from any of our games. Um, yeah, yeah, I, that, yeah, I, I, I love seeing designers riff on other designs. I get excited about that. Yeah. Uh, but I've also noticed like there are certain very common game mechanics that people play on deck building and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now you played with Euro uh, with obviously with Viticulture. Uh, I've yeah. noticed a lot of the games, especially things like Red Rising, uh, Euphoria to another extent, uh, they have ideas and mechanics that very few people have touched on. Like I, I, I don't, the call and this is you know, limited intelligence that whether or not you've ever done a traditional deck builder right and i don't think you have uh i have not yeah I want so to, but yeah I but haven't. but it's yeah. interesting that you always try to do something unique either thematically or mechanically like why wh yeah. why is that why is there that push to making sure that you have something distinct mechanically like why why is that important to you i i think that most of it is that there are so many games out there and so many really good games out there that um, if I'm going to spend a couple years of my life making something, I don't want it to be the same thing that's already out there. An example of this is uh, Sulkin. Have you played Sulkin with the, the dials and wheels? Yeah. I love Sulkin. I really love that game. I still love it. it I, I played it the other day. I didn't realize that it's like 10 years old at this point. I still think it's awesome. Um, and so I've thought about making a game that has gears in it because I love that mechanism. But every time I've tried, I just find myself wanting to play Sulkin. And if I, the designer of the, of the game that uses that mechanism, just want to play Sulkin, why make my own Sulkin when I can just go play the game that already exists? And so even with like deck builders, I, I, there are lots of different deck builders that do different things. Um, I would love to design one, but I think the biggest design challenge I've run into is that I don't want it to be the same thing that's already out there because if someone wants that, they already have that option. They can already get that version of that deck builder. They can already get Clank. They can already get, already get Dune Imperium. Which are you know wonderful twists on the deck building um, method. Um, yeah, so I, I I just I'd rather spend my time doing something a little different if I can. Well, you do make a mode. There's a, uh, a video series you have on your channel where you talk about the game mechanics of other people's games that you yeah. that you like. Is is that way of you trying to giving back, or you're like, oh, this is a great idea, wink, wink. Because <laughs> I noticed even yeah. you're talking about these great mechanics, and I never see them showing up in your in your titles. Yeah, there's certainly some that come up quite a bit that I, I love to work on. Like, I'd love to do an I Cut You Choose game at some point. I love that mechanism. Um, or I, I Price You Choose. I, I, I just like talking about games. Um, and so it was years ago that I, I wanted to do that more. And I didn't, have, I didn't have a platform. I didn't have a place to do it. And I didn't want to review games because I didn't. I, these are people that I might end up working with someday. So I didn't want to criticize other designers. Rather, I wanted to add, like I said, I wanted to add something positive. And so I just try to focus on my favorite elements, my favorite mechanical elements of any game. And again, the discussion that comes from those videos is always really helpful for me as a, as a designer to see what, what other people think about those mechanisms too.
Do you ever get uh, people asking you, like, what are your favorite? You talk about your favorite game mechanisms. Everyone ever talks about yeah. what your favorite games are. Like, do you have a favorite deck builder? Yeah, yeah. I still, I do like top 10 lists that, that feature my favorite games with a specific mechanism. Right now, I'd probably say it's Dune Imperium, but that favorite <clears> deck builder and even favorite game changes between Dune Imperium, Quacks of Quinlanburg, the bag builder. Um, I just did a video just about Clank because I really love a lot of what, what Clank has done. Um, and yeah, I do. I know I do favorite video games. I think what favorite games of all time. I do that twice a year. I do a top ten of those. If there's speaking of that, because you kind of let it loose about video games. If there's an is it like just purely pie in the sky? Are yeah. there IPs that you wish you could get to make a game out of? Because you did Red Rising. That's one of the few examples. Because yeah. you don't often use other people's IPs. Um, but if you yeah. had, if you could grab an IP. And say, uh -huh. I want this, whether it be a movie, a TV show, or a video game. Is there an IP you wish you could grab? At, a lot of people have asked me that after Red Rising, and I, I don't have a good answer to it yet. Red Rising was a special one in that I really loved it. I wanted to share that IP with board gamers, but it was already popular enough amongst readers that I thought it could justify the IP the other way, too. There are many IPs that I love. Like, I love Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, giant IPs. But I don't really want to make another Star Wars game. I don't want to make another Lord of the Rings game. There are plenty of them out there. Um, so it has to, for me, it would have to hit that sweet spot of that Red Rising did. And there might be a video game someday that hits that. I'm not a video, I'm not a big video game player, but there are some pretty impressive things being done in video games that I think could translate well to a tabletop game. Yeah, well, you mentioned but, the fact that um, yeah. like you picked Red Rising. Which you said yeah. was popular, but it's not like a like when you said Red Rising, I hadn't heard of it. Yeah. Right. And you're talking about I wouldn't want to do a Star Wars or Star Trek or, or Lord of the Rings. And I think the reason why is because the market is saturated. So what made yeah. you pick something, and I hate to say more obscure, yeah. like Red Rising? Uh, why did what why did you make pick that one as being the first kind of project you said that was an IP that you didn't actually um own? A big part of it was just my my love for it, but I guess that that over, I do also love Star Wars. I love these other IPs, um, but I I think it was the type of love where it was the type of book that I was constantly recommending to people, I because I loved it that much. Whereas I don't go around recommending Star Wars to people. Everyone's already heard of Star Wars, but yeah. a lot of people hadn't heard of Red Rising. Um, so it was fun to recommend, and there were elements structures in that world that I thought would translate well to a tabletop game. That's fascinating. I, I, yeah, I think you were going to mention whether or not there were games. I mean, for me, like there's a game called Anomaly, which is a inverted tower defense. So instead okay. of uh, you trying to create, because there's a bunch of tower defense board games yeah. based on the idea, but the Anomaly inverts it. So you're actually playing the convoy, trying to survive, going through a city uh. full of alien turrets that are trying to kill you. Um, cool. uh, there's a game called there's a game called Homeworld, which I uh, which is coming out as a role playing game right now. I think that should be tabletop. Uh, so I think there's definitely a lot of options. I mean, obviously, we've seen a lot of video games, especially coming out of Poland. Uh, if you make, if yeah. you're if you're a Polish video game company, you're someone someone there's going to make a board game, Frostpunk, uh, this right. War of Mine, obviously being the perfect examples. So I, I I think there there could be that option there. But I find it interesting that you're the only IP that you've tackled so far was a, a book series that not a lot of people have read. The same thing yeah. about Reckoners. I had no idea what the Reckoners was a novel series. Um, so I find that very interesting yeah. that you decided that, like, what's the future for you? Like, do you think you, you, you'll use an either IP or is Red Rising a completely unique um, entity? It was a fun experiment. It's possible that we'll do another one someday. I, I don't think we have anything like that in the works right now. When we've planned about three years out, 
Um, I, yeah, I would say right now I'm a little bit more excited about creating some some new worlds for our games rather than worlds that already exist in some form. Yeah. Going back to Viticulture World as we kind of wrap things up here, because obviously, is that game out now by the time we're recording this? No, it's the pre-order will be, we're recording this on May 3rd. So the pre-order will be on June 1st is what we're currently looking at. And then shipping a few weeks later to people and then the retail release in mid-summer probably. So beyond the cooperative, um, yeah. are there any other neat ideas that are being presented? You have the boxes. I saw hats. Uh-huh. Are there, Like what's the deal with the hats? The hats. So in Viticulture World, you start with all the workers that you'll ever have. So you start with one grande worker and four workers. And uh, two of those workers have little yellow hats on them. They can only be placed in the summer. And two of them have blue hats on them. They can only be placed in the winter. And when you train a worker in viticulture world, instead of actually gaining a new worker, instead you remove the hat and it becomes a worker that you can place in any season. And that worker can now gain bonuses from action spaces. When they have the hat on, they can't gain the bonus and they're limited to that season. So kind of it upgrades the worker instead of gaining a new worker. Where does that come from? Like, where do you do you look at it and go, like a year down the road, like, damn? Or was there a game you saw that saw that and went, oh, that's a neat idea? Like, how do you get to the idea of removing hats off of meeples? Like, where did you get that? Like, how did that come about? Well, again, I have to give all credit to me here and Francesco for that that concept. Yeah. I think what it was is they found in playtesting that early playtesting that players would just race to get more workers they felt yeah. like okay we even have a chance to to win this thing and that's somewhat the case in competitive viticulture but they found it was somehow even more so in the cooperative version because um, they felt like they had to do many many things to win the cooperative game and so they said let's just take away that race let's give them all the workers they need but uh and then the hats i think just emerged from from there they they wanted some reason to still have a train a worker uh, action well, you hit the nail on the head, like a lot of games, unless, like, once again, bringing up Zulkin that has a feeding mm -hmm. mechanic where the more right. meeples that you have, that, you know, if there's a situation of getting more without the cost of food, it's usually the first mechanic I go for, which is the reason why right. I do very well at Viticulture. Uh -huh. um, there was a game called Space Gate Odyssey um, uh -huh. that I played, and it had the idea that there were meeples and then there were engineer meeples, which were bigger, but okay. the, the engineers had power armor. And to manifest that in the game, you had a plastic cavity meeple that you put uh -huh. the meeple inside of the other meeple and made uh, it a larger meeple they could have just had a larger meeple but no yeah you actually had to insert the smaller meeple into the bigger That's meeple really cool. to give it the power armor so the first thing i was like it's I interesting like having this, this idea of of meeples or miniatures that are modifiable in some way where yeah. you can add and remove things uh, so i yeah. find that very very fascinating that's really Paco, cool I've done I all the, that. yeah yeah no it's it, it said whenever i see like like you whenever i see an idea i'm like Oh, that's a really cool <laughs> idea, and then like writing it down somewhere, yeah. Right, like like for my when it comes to Naramata, it was just it was it was, it was Takedo, but there wasn't much I could add to it. You know, obviously yeah. we had bespoke mechanics here, and and adding a time mechanic so that actions cost time rather than space, so that uh -huh. you like so the idea of the ratchet mechanic, which I love the fact that Tom Basil coined the term the ratchet mechanic, where you uh -huh. can go forward not go back because now. There's like a dozen games that use this mechanic, but everyone's like, oh, yeah. it's Takaido. I'm like, no, it's Takaido. It's the ratchet mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> because now you can have ideas like, you know, now it's not whoever's furthest back in the board, but furthest back in time so that uh -huh. somebody could be behind. But because they did an action that took two hours, they're actually going later. And creating new uh -huh. ideas on variations of a formula, that's limited yeah. to my 
design mentality. I like playing off mm-hmm. of other people's ideas. I don't know yeah. if I have the capacity that you and Lacerda have of creating entirely weird new mechanics whole cloth. Uh, like the like the tapestry seems so organic, and the idea of having once again going back to this idea a mechanic where the game had a variable ending mm-hmm. was such. I had never seen that before. Like, what did you do? You like, did you have a point where like, there has to be a, a fixed ending, and then somebody maybe you went, why? Like, why do we have to <laughs> end the game for everyone at the same time? Like, where did that idea come from? It uh, it mostly came from my desire to have income in the game because income felt like the right thing to have. So periods of time where you're where you, you know getting a, a bunch of resources, um, but where it didn't make sense thematically if 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 I had this macro version of a Civ game where players are all over the world, really, like why, to me, it didn't make sense that, that they would have to gain income at the same time. Like you don't get your paycheck necessarily at the same time as Paco gets his paycheck. Like you're two different entities, two different people. Um, and so I, I wanted this, this macro version of it where players were doing their own thing when they were ready to do it. And one, I later realized that there is a game that came out before it that happens to use that have the same artist as Tapestry that had that same mechanism. I just didn't realize that Everdell has that same mechanism in it, um, which I just yeah, didn't it does. But I, I yeah. it I thought Everdell came out after Tapestry. I think it was before because I I chose the artist for Tapestry based on oh. the box art for Everdell. I was like, I yeah. I want to work with that guy. I think the variation, though, Everdell, which I've played numerous times because I have, it's over there. Because when you build, when you build a tree, you just don't bother taking it apart. Um, uh-huh. The fact that it does, but it's not more than one or two rounds. But I've been in situations right. where, uh, like, my wife would finish tapestry. I'm like, all right, I am going to be playing for another twenty minutes <laughs> because <laughs> of just the machine and the engine. Because yeah. I remember seeing that you have a point marker where you can have three hundred plus points in tapestry. Yeah. And we our first game we ended at like ninety five and one hundred and five. I'm like, how the world do you get to three hundred? <laughs> and then one time I got to two hundred and fifty. I went, oh okay. Because <laughs> like, was there a was there a point in in the in the in the game testing where you're like, oh, there are some wicked mechanics that people can feed up. We're gonna have to add in a three hundred plus point marker in there. I I didn't think anyone would cross the three hundred threshold. Um based on play testing we we found some pretty powerful combos but none that would go above, above and beyond that but there are people now who we have a leaderboard now on our website let's see if what the current last month the top score for was 448 something got 448 the low score among the top scores was playing solo someone got 221 and the rest of the scores range from that all the way up to 448 i've never That's- gotten a score that high that's got to be a. It's got to be a lot of luck in there. I mean, there has to be some luck in that factor. I think that's part of it, and I think these people who who do this, uh, they have played a lot of tapestry. Like they they know exactly what they need to do to get that income engine going early, and to to get points at the right times, to play, to dig until they find the right tapestry card, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you ever look at that and go, "Oh, I'm gonna have to fix that." <laughs> There, there is a little bit of that, yeah. I mean, we have that's why we have people report their scores so we can look at that data over time, and it's now on Board Game Arena as well. So we get the data from Board Game Arena, and uh-huh. uh, yeah, we're probably gonna we we made a few small adjustments over the years. We're probably gonna do one final big round of of civ adjustments at a certain point as well. Yeah, because the expansion which we have, which is another fantastic expansion, does go in and go. Okay, let's yeah, tweak yeah. a couple of these things. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Paco, do you have anything else you want to add? 
Well, yeah, I wanted to ask a question. Um, considering all these, you know, shipping crisis and the shipping costs and everything, and, and this is more to do with, yeah. with the industry itself, what do you think is, how do you think this is going to affect in the long term? Because I think this has proven that there is a an element of delicacy or delicateness, I don't know what the word in English would be, but it's a very delicate state of equilibrium that can be very easily toppled. How do you think that's going to affect uh, board game publishers and board game designers in, in the long term? That's a great question. I, I'm, I'm, I'm still watching it to see to see what happens. I think a few things have started to happen, which are um, really small publishers are probably breaking even on Kickstarters that they hoped that they would make some money on, and that might be the end of their business. Hopefully they won't lose money, but they might not continue um, trying to make more games just because of, of that uncertainty. I think we're going to see a lot more, especially related to Kickstarter, a lot more projects uh, wait to charge shipping until it's time to ship so that they don't lose money on a project. Um, and I think maybe one good thing that might come out of this is I think we will see more publishers, uh, especially related to freight shipping, I think we'll see more publishers put games in the smallest boxes possible, which isn't always good. But I think sometimes we have these oversized boxes that are filled with a bunch of space for no good reason. Um, and it, I, I know there's some publishers out there that have made smaller box games for a while now, and they are winning right now because they are not having to pay these huge freight shipping costs uh, that a lot of us are paying for like tapestry. The ship tapestry mm. scythe right now is incredibly expensive uh, to freight ship from China. Well, so, to, small box games. To be honest, to pretty much anywhere, because I'm finding it incredibly frustrating to get games from the US at the moment. You know, it's, it's getting to the point where I have to wait and see, right, let's see if I can go to Essen and then load up in Essen and put everything in, in, in the box. And The advantages of living in Spain, I get to go to Essen and just drive back. Like, oh, you're lucky. Uh, well, I'm not going to apologize but, for that. You can go yeah, to well, Gen Con. Hey, don't complain. You can go oh, to Gen, Gen Con. Is still, I'm over. I'm in BC. Gen, Gen, Gen Con is equally unattainable. I get Shucks. <laughs> Shucks is the only one I can really attend to. That's a quick bike. Like I can tell. Like I said my uh, my Naramata has been stuck in a container in Busan for the last month, and I'm just staring at my container ID, going, "Will you please move?" But yeah. Um, oh yeah, like I said, I Naramata made good money, but it's if it wasn't for my role playing successes, I this would be the only thing I'd be producing because it's 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 something yeah. that's uh, I can see it's, it's it's shocking. But obviously, right now we have a controversy as we're recording this. People are freaking out over Simon, yeah, because the yeah. shipping costs for their latest ones are astronomical. I was yeah, I watched a video of Board Game Code did a good video <clears> summarizing <throat> what was happening with that, and I, it was. Uh... I, I don't even fully understand where some of their costs came from. Like, I understand they might be higher than normal, but he was quoting a price of $50 shipping for a game that's about the size of Tapestry, like just the core game. And I know Tapestry doesn't cost that much to ship. It, it sounds almost like they were waiting to even charge freight shipping to backers, which is odd. Like, normally, freight shipping is not a calculation when it comes to how much it costs to ship a game to a backer or a customer. That's just right. the cost from your fulfillment center. So, yeah, I, I don't know. That was it was odd to, a little odd to see that I, I but i think that's where the power is also in the hands of the consumers like hopefully people who see that and are dismayed by it will make informed choices in the future when they decide whether or not to back a future project from that company um but are you worried that this could be uh, damaging and dangerous as paco said to independent smaller publishers that only the big guys can chew their way through it because thankfully never it didn't cost terribly much to ship 
Yeah. But that's the worry that this could have been the death knell for a lot of independent publishers. Oh, the the seam. You think the Simon thing will carry over? Well, it's just it's a symptom, like you said. Yeah. Do you think do you think the situation is getting better? Going well, obviously, another thing that was on on a lot of board game Facebook groups have been this push to try to get American productions going. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I don't think it is because of the free market economic model that North America embraces. But I'd like to know your input on that. I. I, I mean, just for freight shipping alone, I would love to manufacture certain things in the U.S., but there are many components that, like, e there are a few U.S. manufacturers, but even they go to China for certain components. Um, I think China has just, they, they, they are very good at manufacturing a lot of weird little things that we find in our games, like the weirdest little component. There's a factory that makes that component. They're really, like the little rubber hats in Viticulture. There's a factory that's really good at making little rubber components. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't see that changing at the same time. I, I've talked to our manufacturer Panda and, uh, they're great at, I think, listening to their clients. And I, I think someday they will, they will think about doing something in the U S it might not be fully manufacturing, but it might be like assembly in the U S it might be card printing, but not printing other things. So I think we'll see that movement over time, but it's not going to be overnight. It'll be years. I think before we have anything uh, really worth per pursuing, I think, for most publishers in the U.S. So do you think it's a mechanical hurdle, like they just don't have the infrastructure, or do you think it's an economic model, the fact that in China, mm -hmm. you can say, I want to make a board game company to make board games, and China goes, here's a million dollars, don't pay us back. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of difficult, especially yeah. in Canada or America, when, you know, you 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 want to be able to give people a living wage, and then on top of that, you have to pay back a five or six million dollar loan. Do you think it's it's an it's a it's a mechanical problem or do you think it's an economic problem? I think it's probably a combination of the two and and some elements beyond that too. Just the head start I think they have for so many of the different things, especially for the board game industry, but for a lot of industries too. I think they have a, a really really good head start. Um, like, why open a new factory to make little rubber hats in the U.S. if you can just place an order today for a factory that already makes little rubber hats in, in China. The Asics Magic rubber hat company. <laughs> <laughs> All we do, we just make rubber hats. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little bit of, of, the, of both of those elements. Do you find, do you think uh, with this crisis, it's, it's, is it going to go back to normal or are there going to be permanent thing, permanent hurdles that the future is going to have to work around? I think if Russia hadn't attacked Ukraine, we might have seen some element of normalcy return. I think freight shipping prices are never going to go down to what they were before, but I think they probably would have gone down a certain amount. But I think that really complicated some things that we didn't expect in terms of, uh, I don't know. It, I think it, I, I, I just had a feeling that things were getting a little bit better and then mm -hmm. that happened and I don't see that going away. Yeah. yeah unfortunately I, I, I backed a game company that was in the Ukraine and like, well, yeah. uh, there'll be some delays. <laughs> Please understand. Yeah. Everyone's like, "Yeah, I think you're good, considering your your place is just, you you've just been evacuated and you're living in another country right now." Uh, yeah. Paco, anything else before we wrap things up? Or well, the things if you let me, I'm, I I could stay here for the rest of the evening asking you an awful lot of questions. <laughs> so, uh, so I will ask you just one one question. Um, have yeah. you gone into considering all this of the shipping crisis and the difficulty in manufacturing some of the things? Have you actually gone into considering well? 
maybe we start designing games like so and so and so and so and so we can avoid this 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 is this and this and if so what are you changing in your design and production approach to to make up for this shortage and, and this unsettling times well yeah it's a great question i i would say that for us we got a little lucky in a few ways and so i would say my the answer that comes to mind first is to keep doing a few things that we were already doing two things are a we don't make many games at Stonemaier Games. We release maybe one or two games a year, and I think that has been really helpful for us. There may be some other companies maybe had built their economic model based on throwing out ten games every year, releasing ten games, and hoping that one of them worked out. And I don't think companies can really afford to do that anymore. Most companies can't, and we fortunately had already embraced a, a more streamlined model. The other element is that all of our games have uh, solo player modes and two player modes in the games. And they also go up to five, six, some of them seven players. But those one and two player modes in games and having really strong one or two player modes, I think has become incredibly important mm. for people, whether it's related to the pandemic or people's maybe game groups have slimmed down. My primary gaming person is, is my girlfriend. We, we play a lot of games together. So I, if the game doesn't play two players, I'm not going to buy it because that's, I, I mean, I get it to the table. So, I think any company that had already embraced or is now embracing those one or two player modes is going to uh, is, has a better chance of surviving. I think than companies that resist that. Yeah. That makes, yeah, cause makes sense. Like, yeah, so, yeah, because you brought it up perfectly there. Because um, now it seems like uh, solo solitary games, solo solitaire modes are almost becoming mandatory. And that was something once again that I think that uh, Stonemaier were doing long before you were you had the automata. Which was right. this separate these cards that you'd have, and you've been having that since the beginning. I can't remember a game that you didn't have, or maybe just the reprints. Yeah. I'm not sure the first Viticulture had it, but later ones did. Yeah, not quite the first Viticulture, but soon after that, the, the version you have had, had it yeah. in the box. Yeah, yeah, I, I find that fascinating. That uh, you're right because now it's mandatory. Everyone has to yeah. have. Um, I was I was brought on to work on Robotech Reconstruction, and it uses a similar model to the coin format we see with uh, Root. But I said that your single problem is that Root, they've made the game in a certain way where you could play Root as two players. And they say, well, please, you can only play with these two people. But Reconstruction didn't have that system. So it, it's only playable for three and four players. And I was just like, great. You have 5% of the market. It's a very specific thing. Because you yeah. can't go to five and you can't go to two and you don't have a solitaire mode and there's nothing in the game that allows you to do that. And I was like, this is something you should fix and they never did. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about that game. Mm. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, because I think you nailed the head, you know, right, right, right there on the, on the, on the head with that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, we've seen a lot more people pay attention to that for sure. And I, I yeah. Makes sense. I, I think, I think yeah. it makes sense. Well, um, Jamie, I don't think we're going to take any longer of your time because I bet you have an awful lot of things to do and you've been incredibly gracious with staying with us for, for this long. So thank you. Uh, so much and um, just to make it official yes I've spent quite a while of this interview uh, controlling my urges to geek out so um... <laughs> that's why I had everything written down I'm like I'm not I'm gonna focus I can get all my questions down I'm gonna be professional because like I said it's one of those things it's like because we had who did we have, who did we have last month um, Ignacia Trevishek yeah oh cool oh, and, a, and Ignacia guy. I absolutely love Ignacia and uh, I absolutely love what he does, but uh, you've always had a specifically a special place in my heart because you were one of the first 
getting the, uh, the Stonemaier games was kind of the thing. We got Viticulture uh -huh. very early. Like we, we got Viticulture when we only had 10 games and now we have 300. And uh -huh. we have almost, even before we got onto your review list, we had a large number. So when you had, here's a review stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I got most of those. Uh, uh -huh. So it was it was definitely one of those things uh, that uh, I, I, I've always loved the way you handle things, all the way you interact with people. And one of my biggest points was going and going, how does he know how to interact with people? Because I look at you and that's how I formulate how I present myself to my fans. I don't have a lot of fans of Viticulture, yeah. but in role playing, I've been uh -huh. doing this since 2007. And I look at you and I go, that's how you do it. And I always make a point of going, I get angry and I'm like, okay, what would Jamie do? Shut up, <laughs> you stay quiet, and then you, you yeah. formulate a response and you create something intelligent and you you get so many more fans and so much more respect that way. And I'm amazed. And we're seeing it uh, as much in the role-playing industry as we're seeing in board games. Game designers that are just detonating. And we're seeing it right now yeah. with uh, Lanasa and, and, the, and the crisis with him and Star Frontiers <laughs> and all this. And I'm like, why? Why? Like, why can't people be more like Jamie and just can handle it so well? Because even when you have controversy, there's never this push to go, ah, burn it to the ground. Everyone's like, oh, it's Jamie. He'll he'll explain everything. <laughs> and that's what I respect about you. It's 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 that it's that being able to interact with people as well as you do, and also writing the blogs. Because God knows, I read through all of them when I started doing uh, my 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 meta research. But uh, it's 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 hard, and yeah. I and having done it, I'm like I have so much more respect for you now, <laughs> for for everything you do. I and and I hear people saying one of the biggest complaints they have people saying is the fact that if you want to be if you want to be if you love board games, don't be a board game designer because you will do nothing else except uh -huh. administration testing, and you will hate your game by the end of it. So the fact uh -huh. that you still talk about board games and how much love you have for them, and you run and design and do all these things. I, I'm like, I don't know how you do it. I try to find the fun in it. I, I think that's that's the key. I mean, there are certainly moments that aren't fun, and certainly moments where I say dumb things um, and have to have to deal with the repercussions. But uh, I, I think I'm I'm able to keep going because I I I try to find the fun in pretty much everything that I do here, and I have a great team around me too. Now, I for a long time it was just me running the show here, and now I have two other full-time employees doing some great things for us too. So that's, that's kind of a huge help. My advice, marry your bookkeeper. That's what I mean. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> my girlfriend may not like that. She has <laughs> her own office right there. She handles all my accounting. And trust me, when, when she's angry, I know about it. <laughs> you know, hearing the euphoric glee whenever her books balance is a strange thing to be sure. It's like, oh my God, books play. like, okay, she's turned on. Gotcha. <laughs> get up the roses but anyway so anyway thank you very much you. for this uh i know you gave us 20 minutes you gave us an hour and i really really appreciate it hopefully we can do this again the next time you have a, a big publication coming out that sounds great yeah thanks for your time today as well i appreciate it it's been a pleasure all right, all right well guys. thanks a lot man thanks for uh everything you do and thanks for uh, talking to us thanks have all a right. good day take care see you okay. This you know this this section of the of the podcast was recorded separately uh, as a companion piece to help explain the context of the interview that we're having. So why didn't you just say? You just oh, said it. Say that. I got it. So hey everyone. So this section of the podcast is being uh, edited in later because we did the interview separately. So we're going to go over the details of what we're talking about, specifically the controversies uh, revolving the Viticulture World Cooperative expansion and um, how it came about, what happened, and how Jamie uh, 
but dealt with it, which I felt was really, really personally, I felt it was very professional. But that's typical Jamie. He's he's he he has a, a, a an amazing talent for handling people very well, very well. Which, as I said in the interview, is something that a lot of uh, game designers lack. Yeah, you know, um, that type of that that's true. But in in I mean, in fairness, you you you're a little bit of a fun boy, aren't you? I. Am I am a bit of a suck. I'm not going to lie. But that being said, <laughs> I'm also a fan of Sandy Peterson and Mike uh, uh, McIlker, and I'm perfectly aware of the controversies that they've risen up. And I'm not going to hold. I'm, I'm going to hold them to as much as a flame. If 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 Jamie did a Will Smith on on table slap, I wouldn't be giving him a pass just because he's Jamie. Um, I've respected him because of how he interacts with his audience, right? Because I, I, I own games that I like better than Jamie's games. I, I In my top 10 games of all time, Jamie, I think, has two spots on there. That's not bad. Um, it's not bad, but like I said, it, it's, it's you know, I like uh, I like Lacerda. I, like, I love his games, and I'm not a fanboy for him. I have no idea who, what he's like, for example. But uh, I, I, am a, I adore like, uh, like four or five of his games I absolutely enjoy. Um, and I think Jamie is, 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 is a bit of an outlier because, you know, it's one of those situations. We hear of Zulkin. Mm-hmm. I don't – and now I know the designer, but I only know the designer because what things that he has done. Unfortunately, that were relatively negative, but I, I couldn't go. Oh, this is the newest game by what's his name. It doesn't seem to. I don't seem to care so much. Uh, Jamie is one of those people where he is Stonemeyer, hmm. right? Like I couldn't tell you who runs Simon. I couldn't tell you who runs ninety percent of the companies out there. But Jamie with Stonemeyer is is a unique situation because he's a major company of which he is the sole face. He he is Stonemeyer. You could call it, you know you, you call you, you know, I'm surprised he doesn't call it Stegmeyer games because it's so much of his identity. I have to say one thing, uh, and I'm going to put all of this after the interview because uh, otherwise we're going to be giving some spoilers. Um, mm-hmm. But I was quite amazed by the fact that he's only employed people full time recently, even though he's a huge name and his games do sell, I think, quite well and quite a lot. The fact that until recently he had to do everything by himself, that's quite something. I think it comes to show that games don't really make that much money. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, you hit the nail on the head. And what's interesting is that, once again, which brings up another issue, probably one of the conversation is the fact that I, I think it's a little bit of a misdirection to say that he did everything himself rather right. than him being the only he being one of the few employees. Because, um, you know, for example, I know he brings on a bunch of artists. Obviously, Scythe yeah. was done by a very famous artist and so forth. So he contracts out a lot. Right. Like, for example, my company has two employees only. And, and even though we've run four successful Kickstarters with a, with a couple more coming out and. You could people can say I'm a successful game designer because I get to live off of my game design and it's not a backup hobby. You know, I don't have a backup profession like welding, but I still only have two employees and the other, uh, uh, you know, me and my wife, and everything else is contracted out. You know, Nick Greenwood, who does the art for 99% of my work, he's contracted employee. He's not an actual employee. He's a contractor. <laughs> uh, same thing with Jason Bolt, who did the layout of Naramata. Same thing with. Um, Jeremy Simmons. These are all contractors. So I 
I have one employee outside of myself, my wife, and she's my bookkeeper, my wife, and she and she's my bookkeeper, and everybody else is somebody now. That is a double-edged sword because a I can just hire people when I need them because there are, there'll be huge gaps where I don't need them, but it does create that situation where we're paying people without giving them the benefit of, of benefits and so forth. And the contractor situation is something where I'm cognizantly aware of the fact that it's a double-edged sword. You pay people when you need to pay them, and a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily get work get to get sporadic work on top of everything else. But it can't be. It's a little. It's a little situation where it'd be nice if Nick was my permanent employee and I could give him money and benefits and pay for medical and give him actual coverage. But being contractor, I'm not obligated to do that. He gives me an invoice and I pay him and he has to pay for all of his benefits out of his own pocket. So it's a double-edged sword in that situation where it would be cool if I made enough money where I can say, oh, Nick, you're now a permanent employee and I get to give you benefits and so forth. Because um, I think, once again, as an employer, I, 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 I have to I, I want to be responsible. And sometimes I think contracting out everything is a situation where I get to be a pass and say, Oh, I don't have to give Nick any benefits. I don't have to give him medical coverage. God knows he's in America, he probably needs it. Like Jason Bowles, for example, he was a contractor. He uh, he is still is a contractor, and he was a contractor for several companies. Uh, Werewolf, uh, the palace and castles of Mad King Ludwig are both his designs. The first version of um, Skylands was, I do believe, was was also his his baby. And because the company has decided to hire full time employees, you would think they would bring him on board to be a full time employee, and they didn't. They brought somebody else, and they pushed him away, say, "Well, we don't need to contract you out anymore." We have a full-time employee, which also feels like, well, that was a kind of a kick of the teeth. The guy did the graphic design of four of your games. Why would you hire somebody else instead of bringing on the person who did work? So it's a, it's a, it's a situation where, you know, I can't ever hire Jason because I only put out work that he would require his essence for about two or three weeks out of the year. Nick Greenwood, God knows, I probably could if I was in that situation where I could give him a full-time employment. But that's one thing about the game industry that's unfortunate. So Jamie, I say Jamie, yeah, he's been his own employee, but he's been contracting out. And it's only recently where he's had to bring in people as permanent employees just because his operation has gotten that large. Yeah, but as I said, I mean, I think the important bit is to think, of course, in every company, there's always going to be something, somebody who's doing something. I mean, I don't right. think... It's very difficult to do absolutely everything, especially in a board game company. I would think it would, I think it would be completely impossible. But again, the fact that only now, regardless of how many people he's been contracting in the past, he's managed to make them full-time employees, that is quite telling. Because yeah. I, I think that, you know, you, you want to make, I mean, if you have any shred of decency, that you want to make people employees and you want to give them those benefits and you want to give yeah. them that security and that safety. And I don't think that Jamie would be any different. So the fact that he... Yeah, exactly. But what I was simply saying is that it hasn't been a one-man operation. He has contracted people out. That's um, that's still one-man operation. Sorry, that that yeah. is still a one-man operation. Yeah. Uh, even if you like, hire for example, like me, people. I don't do my own artwork, but I do my layout. Uh, I do my, Look, all my you, publishing. But that's the thing. You are a one-man operation. If you get a broken leg or a broken back or you get run over by a bus, the operation Nobody. gets fucked. That's it. Done. Yeah. 
Sorry, it's, yeah. it's, it's done. I don't care. There's no backup. Exactly. exactly. And there's nobody else to continue. You know, you know, your artists wouldn't be able to continue what you're doing. There would be nobody to take, you know, the button. That, that's it. You I was are... thinking that too. I was recently like, what would happen if I would, do, like, you know, I have a Kickstarter, I'm, you know, closing up here with Affinity and Aromata. And if I were to drop dead, like, just go, Ooh, and I'd do that thing in, like, Monty Python, I just go, and I just fall over. Um, what would happen? And it would be a difficult situation because, you know, I'm just reached a point where I can let affinity go and go, okay, now it's gone. I doesn't need my hands on it anymore because now it could be in the hands of other people. But up until this week, that wasn't, and what would happen if, if, if I were to croak, there is nobody to pick up. No one knows how my operation works. No one knows how my layout works. Exactly. No one knows what the, so, and my wife, God, you know, God bless her. She would be completely beside herself. She'd be unable and incapable and unwilling to, to try to fix the situation, potentially leaving a thousand backers, um, without any product, exactly. right? And so, it, it, so it, does, it, it doesn't put, matter. I mean, how many contractors you or Jamie had, it doesn't matter. For as long as the bulk of the responsibility of the continuation of the business falls on your shoulders, you're a one-person company. Yeah, that, that's it. Now, spinning around to what we were talking about, one thing I've also noticed is that uh, streamers, like YouTube content creators, that are focused on board games, they also have started to bring in permanent employees. <sighs> are semi-permanent employees. Like Rado was a one-man operation for the longest time. It was him and his wife. Uh, and now Rado has four or five other people that do regular video content because he has so many preview requests. He now has four people that are at least, at least two. Now we see there's, a, there's a, a, a new person on this channel. So at least three people are doing content for him. I don't know if they're permanent employees, but they seem to do considering how often they do work. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was very fascinating. And I also know the fact that uh, the Dice Tower, uh, up until two years ago, only had a permanent staff of, I think, three people. And now I think they're up to five or six that are actually permanent employees. Uh, not as many as you might think, but because the vast majority of content, like Brian and so forth, uh, like I said, the vast majority of them, I don't be, believe are being paid. They're just doing it for exposure. But there's a handful of people that are actually being employed. You see, uh, but uh, mm. up until recently, it was only like three people. That, that's something that we should cover in a podcast. I mean, we can talk about it today. And it's, it will make it for a very, very long podcast because it's going to be a whole episode. But I was discussing with some people a few days ago about the unsustainability of the current uh, social media earning model. As in the ability that... Some people want to achieve, to make a living, a constant, safe and secure living for their working lives using social media. And how unsustainable that is at the moment, because most channels, unless you're somebody like, you know, uh, no pun included, who is making just out of their Patreon, they make 4,500 euros a month plus whatever earnings they make out of YouTube. So they are off, safe. Off of sponsorship, yeah. Yes, the, the, and, and sponsorships, correct. So they have three different methods of earning, That's which, which is completely fair enough um, and totally cool as far as I'm concerned. But unless you get to that point, and even if you are to that point, you are not making enough money to be able to have enough employees that if you happen to fall downstairs and have to stop, your channel will continue without a loss or a large enough loss that you will have to stop and recoup and offer to time. Because people who follow social media, especially video productions, are fickle. Hmm. Something appears, 
you know, uh, you, you stop three months doing something, somebody else appears in that time, and by the time you come back, they have forgotten you. That's yeah. it, you're, you're gone. And to recoup all that means to have to rethink what you're doing because what people like now, even three, six months, one year later on, is vastly different from what they used to like. So you are making, let's say, 50,000 or 60,000 euros a year, which is a very nice salary, but not enough to keep having a comfortable living and hiring enough people that will ensure the perpetuation of the podcast or the channel, because having those people doesn't guarantee that you're going to make more money proportionally to keep the whole thing going. Well, I think you're right, but I think this is definitely a conversation for another topic because it will it will eat up a full hour if we're not careful. Yes. But um, there's, yeah, I think you're 100% right. And I don't think that there's, some people seem to think that there's some kind of threshold um, with uh, with you, with social media, that there's a certain point where you become self-sustaining. Uh, but I've also seen a channel, I've seen, ch there's actually a channel that talks about the rise and fall. And this, oh, this is ironic. There's a YouTube channel whose an, almost entire content deals with how other YouTube, uh, other social media companies have failed. And it was fascinating. And I because I, I, I was thinking recently going, wow, I never, I never see this X company producing content anymore. And I completely forgot about them because they, I didn't see them on my social media channel. So mm -hmm. I completely forgot they existed. And I was like, and what happened to them? And then you go online and go, oh, yeah, these people had 4 million subscribers. Like, what happened? And then you can see how fickle and how quickly some a company can rise and fall. And sometimes the company is self-sustaining and sometimes that company is... Um, and there was, a, there was a video I just watched today where they're talking about the fact that how do social media companies make money? And they make money off of off branding, off people, right? GMS Magazine is you. It's not There's not a, another sure. entity. But a lot of companies, like a company called Machinima, which was a very popular and a huge YouTube channel, they're producing tons of content. They were trying to sell people on them. And the, their content creators are like, no, nobody gives a shit about you. Nobody gives a shit about Machinima. They care about what videos you have. It's kind of like you have a a um, a racing team. An example, like you you could have a Ferrari brand uh, cap, but you would not have a, a cap that said Formula One. You would have a, a cap for your favorite NFL team. You wouldn't have a team that said NFL. It's not about nobody cares about the parent company. No, you know. You can have you. You can say I. You can see you can have a. Uh, you you may say I love Fruit Loops, sure, but you don't say I love Dow Chemicals. Nobody says that. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about the parent company. It's about the branding, uh, and that's unfortunately the truth. And sometimes the brands are specific programs. Sometimes and brands are very often the people specifically. And going back to what we said about Jamie, Jamie is very much his company. Mm. Like exactly. he is. People say I, I, you know, I love Stonemaier games, but people have also said I like Jamie Stegmeier's designs. I like his games, and sometimes as much as his as someone else. And so people go, Wingspan, what a great Stonemaier game! And someone's like, Oh, right, Jamie didn't design that game. Like in our interview, he was commenting and he was correcting me on a, on more than one occasion where he was reminding the fact that he designed Viticulture, but he did not design this new expansion. Right? Mm -hmm. It's some. It was it was two other people else, that yes. designed the Viticulture world. Right. But unfortunately, it's one of those situations where because we associate like Kleenex, like Band-Aids, we associate Stegmeier with Stonemeyer, which doesn't help the fact that he sounds so much like we yeah. can assume they're, they're one of the same. Yes. But the, the fact the, that he'll he'll design a game that has his name on it and he'll have a, design, a game that's designed by somebody else, but it has his company's name on it. 
And so people kind of assume it's his. But it happens all the time with social media accounts. I reckon that if Matt Mercer left Critical Role, that would be the end of Critical Role. I 100% agree. You know, that, that, yeah. that would but be the end of it. That's another example. You know, uh, and if maybe, yeah, I think even now, if Tom Vassell left the Dice Tower, that would be the end of the Dice Tower. Funny you should mention that. I think if somebody bought out Dice Tower, kept the staff, and just kept on producing content, I think that brand could survive. You think so? I, I think so. I, there's, there's a few exceptions because where I think a lot of people go to Dice Tower, and it's one of those situations where uh, a good example would be um, uh, Shut Up and Sit Down. Mm -hmm. the, the original people who do should have sit down, they've moved on to other things. I never see any content with them anymore. And, and, and some of them have actually moved on to other YouTube channels. To the point that two new people are doing most of the videos and shut up and sit down. I still watch those videos, even yeah, though the original but, guys. Because, but I think there's a difference between what you were mentioning earlier. People buy onto the brand and not necessarily onto the people who, behind the brand. Yeah. And shut them and sit down. I think they have such a wonderful formula that it doesn't matter who makes them, as long as it is them. Uh, and it was them as in, in shut up and sit down. And it's the same formula. And it follows the same rules. People are going to like it because. It's just good. It's fun. It's yeah. just, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. So, but there's a double edged sword too, because going back to what we said about Rado, um, when I approached Rado to do a, a preview for Naramata, he said he could do it, but he was going to give it to somebody else, like one, like his new staff. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't interested in that because I know for a fact that if you see Rado's face on a preview and you see his face, not his name, his face on that video, I know Rado's doing that preview. I am about 10 times more likely to click on that video if it's one of his staff. I don't know them. I don't know what they like. I don't know their attitude. I don't know trust them. Using the, even though they're using the exact same no. hardware on the exact same channel. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. And, and it, it, it's one of those situations where it's, it's kind of a situation where if Rado left and and gave the channel to the other employees, I probably wouldn't be watching Rado's videos because I went to Rado because I went for him. That's his face. And it doesn't matter he's brought new people. Dice Tower is a different story where at least when uh, Garcia and 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 Healy were doing videos, right? On top of I was watching their videos as much as watching Tom's videos. Right. And there were other people's videos. I was. And there's a few people on that channel I do like and a few people I don't care. And the unfortunate irony is the vast majority of the people that Tom cut out along with me about a year and a half ago. Most of those people I still watched. So when he cut out Anna and, and Jason Peacock, which was part of the big culling, which I was, I was part of, uh, I was just like, I was watching those people <laughs> and he brought in new people like uh, like Drake and a few others like, I don't care about these people. They haven't earned themselves. You know, they haven't earned a, a spot, and and it's funny too because it's just like it's 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 a it's a weird situation, right? Now, like, thankfully, uh, Melissa's on there, and I do watch Melissa. So when Melissa uh, Matthew, Ma Melissa Matthew Mel Macaque, because uh, she because uh, because they go by both names, so uh, Melissa Matthew Macaque, whenever they put a post a video, I'm gonna watch that video. But they're one of the few people left that on that channel that I'm like, oh, this person's doing a channel. Even with Tom comes up, if Tom doesn't do a video for a game that I'm interested in, I'm not going to watch it. It's got to be a game I'm interested in. Well, no pun included, I will listen a, a, to a review for a game I'm not interested in because I want to hear what he has to say. But that's just that's just that. Yeah, no, that does matter. Um, but, so going now, now, this is part of my way of spinning this conversation around. This whole controversy with Somire came mm -hmm. about because of another channel. In this case, it was called uh, Thinker's Beamer. 
Um, I have not heard of them. They have eleven thousand subscribers. Uh, it's 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 a it's a pair of a pair of ladies. I don't know much about them. Um, Amy and Maggie, aka Thinker Themer, we're an Australian couple with two very different perspectives on what makes a great game. Uh, so we have Amy, who's the thinker, and Maggie, who's the themer, and and so forth. Um, so, you know that that's that's their that's their thing, and they have dozens and dozens of videos on their channel. Like I said, there's probably hundreds of of, of board game YouTube creators that we never we never know about, and they average about two point seven to three thousand views per uh, to per video, which is definitely admirable. Eleven point two. A uh, thousand are is definitely a really good number. So I was surprised that I hadn't heard of them. Uh, now, but they did do a video that was simply titled "Why We Can't Review Viticulture World Yet," uh, and it, it has by far the most successful video on their channel. It has more views than the other, the previous twenty videos combined. Wow! Um, because obviously it became the topic. Now, um, they in that video they brought up an issue that they had with viticulture. And for that, I'll go to what Jamie was talking about, and I'll do a little uh, kind of uh, quoting here. So we know that viticulture world expansion um, and the content he's talking about involves uh, South America, which has, it's a medium complexity, has 17 cards. And the core mechanic of South America con is that players can leverage people from history who made a big impact on viticulture in that region. The history of winemaking there is, is as fascinating as it is problematic. Um, and co-designers Mihir and Francesco researched historical figures who were instrumental in introducing and implementing winemaking in South America. Uh, in this continent deck, each event card presents a short-term goal for a player to accomplish. If they do, they gain a specific character with a specific ability relating to um, vineyard-related mechanisms. Um, so in addition to there's a there's a bit of a diversity oversight which has always been plaguing a lot of games we talked about it at length um and they they in their play testing they pay a cultural consulting uh service to review their products uh for any unintended harm uh, their games might cause to people of different cultures and backgrounds around the world mm -hmm. When the consultant noticed two conquistadors among the historical figures selected by Mihir and Francesco, she flagged the following concern for each of them, saying, quote, uh, his conquest and his treatment of indigenous people has since cast him as more of a villain of history. Her recommendation in its entirety was, also quoting, be careful to not point Cortez slash Pizarro in too positive a light as someone who brought wine grapes to the Western Hemisphere if he did play an instrumental role, try not to emphasize his role too highly. There was no recommendation to remove the Conquistador characters, though in hindsight, uh, JB says, I should not have needed someone, even an expert, for me to identify the solution. It is solely my fault for not identifying and implementing the correct solution. As a result, we included the following text to the first card of the South America continent. The impact on winemaking by the characters described in this module came as at a grave cost to indigenous peoples, and we do not honor the means and methods by which Europeans secured these lands. Uh, basically, we knew that there was a problem, and we implemented what we thought was the right solution to ensure that viticultural world would accomplish our overall goal of bringing joy to tabletop worldwide and not causing harm. As it turns out, though, it was definitely the wrong solution. Flash forward six months, production is complete, and two of my Favorite board game reviewers, Amy and Maggie of Thinker Themer, have the advanced review copy of Viticultural World. Maggie is originally from Venezuela. 
After playing a few of the early continents, she was excited to play the South African continent. And then in this video, you can see what happened next. In short, Maggie was surprised to see two of the worst conquistadors in history included in the viticulture world, and she was beyond bewildered that the expansion would ask players to partner with such terrible people to gain a winemaking benefit. Uh, these conquistadors are among the greatest bullies of the world and yet are consistently whitewashed among the annals of history. And now to find them in a beloved game, uh, Maggie was devastated, not just because of her heritage, but because of all people who would play Viticulture World and see these two terrible people memorialized, uh, memorialized in it. Uh, Amy and Maggie brought this to uh, Jamie's attention, and you can learn more about that response directly from their video. Um, Jamie said he was heartbroken to learn that Viticulture World caused harm instead of joy to them and to anyone. Uh, even with the disclaimer included in the South American deck, Jamie says, I knew we had made a big mistake. Yes, these conquistadors had a large impact on winemaking in South America, but these terrible people don't deserve to be memorialized in any way in our game, especially not in the context of characters who give players special abilities. Uh, they never should have been included, and the recommendation across the board from the diverse, the, the diverse team of people who saw the expansion of progress should have been to remove and replace them. Uh, Jamie says, I ultimately take responsibility for not realizing that the disclaimer wasn't enough. I should have removed these conquistadors from viticulture a long time ago. Uh, and so that is, and as a result, he's created a pack of replacement cards for the South America continent and viticulture world. It includes a total of six cards, two cards to replace those that reference Cortez, two cards to replace those that reference Pizarro, and one card to replace the first card in the deck, which references the conquistadors, which will no longer be applicable with the conquistadors removed. And one card explaining the mistake. So um, these replacement cards will be packed with every included Viticulture, Viticulture World package pre-ordered from Stonemaier. And we're also sending them to distributors and retailers worldwide to, to be included which every, with every copy sold. Um, he also adds, I want to be unequivocally clear that I, am, I, Jamie, am solely responsible for not identifying and implementing the correct solution before we entered production for Viticulture World. Uh, and there's more to that people can read on the site. So you can understand my, my, my point at that point was where he knows exactly the language to use. He never throws anyone under the bus. And he comes out with that disclaimer that says, this is on me. I'm going to fix it. Uh, he never says, he never says, you know, I blame the diversity group or this, uh, you know, this other group I hired who said, you could leave it in there, but definitely throw a disclaimer. He didn't, he didn't blame them for not re recommending the, its removal. He just said, nope, it's my fault. I should have seen it coming and remove it. That's the controversy that came about uh, at the end of April. Well, I think, um, well, firstly, he did the right thing. Um, he, did the, the, he did also the only thing that could save the situation. Yeah. That's it. But to his credit, he also did the right thing in creating a pack that would be distributed to replace whatever was inside. Mm. If he had said everything he said, you know, my fault, it's on me, I realize next print out of the game will be sorted. I, I would believe it because that's, that's just not good enough. Yeah. And that is what many people would say. So I think the fact is that not just that when one takes responsibility for one's mistakes, mm -hmm one disarms the opposition because you're already down. What are they going to keep doing? Keep keep punching you down? You're already down. You've already said it. You need yeah. to fix it. 
But if the solution is not the right solution, then your words are completely empty. You know, I, I am a big believer that apologies without reparations is just performative. It doesn't yeah, mean you, anything. Yeah, it's yeah, you're, performative is actually the perfect word for it. Yeah. No, no, I, don't, I don't care how many times you say I'm you're sorry for having said something unless you make up for the damage that you've done when you said whatever it is you said. Those are just words that the wind is going to sweep away and never be heard again. Who gives a shit about that? So the yeah. fact that he did the right thing and it was the right solution. Again, it was the right solution. It wasn't something that was going to be at an extra cost. It wasn't something that people would have to wait and buy. No, no, no. It was something, you know, I fucked up. My money where my mouth is. There it goes. Brilliant. So, so the so yeah, so we are in agreement on that. And so now the so me not necessarily uh, making an argument. I'm actually making. A, I'm proposing a question. Um, because like I said, he already had like it's also one thing to say I did this, and then someone says, "Wait a second, you know," and throws up the red flag. But the fact that he previously paid a cultural consulting mm -hmm. service <clears throat> who looked at it and said, "This is fine." put a disclaimer saying that we're not absolving these people the fact that he went and did that pre that that he tried to hit it out the path he did this even before anyone raised up any red flags he paid a consulting service they said here's he he followed their advisement and and then my question is ways he did the preamble he did the preparation he was responsible before and the mistake was the fact that he takes responsibility for not doing what was the correct course of action. But of course, he technically, I don't know if, if I pay a cultural consulting service and they say, this is a problem, here's your solution. And I do that solution. If somebody tells me that's not good enough, I'm like, what did you want me to do? I, I literally, because I, when I did Affinity, I was asked, do you have a sensitivity reader? And I, my plan was, I generally don't because I run a policy of if all the only people I piss off are white people, I'm okay. I do not like if I, all I piss off or I, I make this joke commonly. I only I only make make a point of pissing off heterosexual white males, and if, if those are the people I'm pissing off, then I'm a pretty good story. But I do generally do bring in people uh, uh, to read my work. Um, you know, like I said uh, on my audio book, uh, I have a very broad range of people. I make a point of even though this is an audio book, but this character is black, I want somebody a person of color to do this voice role because it's important that we do that. The irony, of course, is that she then decided to adopt an English accent, so she has no way, you know, I, I not to say that cliche, she doesn't sound any ethnicity, but that's not the point. The point is that we, we I still reached you out. You got a black person, yes. We still still hire the same person, right? And uh, we have two people who are, I one person who's a voice actor who's non-binary, I've another one who's gay. Uh, and the irony, of course, is that uh, none of them are playing those characters. You know, it's just, it's, it's just purely talent at that point. Uh, but I, I asked, I go, yeah, well, I have a friend who's uh, who's Pacific Islander, and I do have a lot of people who do read my work. But the thing is, is that my books will be controversial because I write them to be controversial. So I know I'm going to ruffle feathers, especially with religious groups and so forth. So my look is that is that he did the he did the preamble, he did the responsible thing at the ahead of time. He pays the cultural consulting service. They give him an advisement. He puts a disclaimer. He puts that in. Why wasn't that enough? Because I would have thought, like, I think Jamie, he technically had his bet. He, ha even though he did, this is the reason I, play, I think, praise him so much, because I think he didn't actually have to do that. He did it because he's a good person and he knows how to head these things off for the past. But that also being said, I was like, 
he already did more than what most people do anyway by putting the disclaimer based on the recommendation of, the, of this consult, cons, uh, con, uh, consultation service who he pays into. So he does that responsible thing. Why wasn't that enough? Because the damage is not repaired. That's it. It is, it, right. it, is, it is not enough because it doesn't matter who, who the, the ball ended with Jamie. That's it. Right. That it was, at the end of the day, a consultant is that. They consult. They, they don't decide. They give you a choice and they tell you, I think this is what you should do. Right. That's it. If Jamie had gone to a different consultant, maybe, maybe a different consultant has said, you know, this is it. I mean, but this happens all the time. Uh, my, my friends at Britannia Games, they released uh, The Land of the Rising Sun. It's a supplement for chivalry and sorcery based in Japan. And they had two Japanese cultural consultants. Both of them very highly educated people. One of them teaches art in Germany, I believe, and the other one teaches something else in another country. And they did the consultancy. And they called the Great Oriental Sea to the Pacific Ocean. Because that is what it was called hundreds of years ago. Right. And there was a massive thing and you know they came and said we, we we're sorry we check we, we can change it but we checked and two japanese born sensitivity consultants told us that that was okay it was not and there's a historical connection like it's act that the actual name of that there's not just a historical connection there is a cultural connection to give you an example okay to to to, to put my but foot in it, for example, in Spain, the word oriental is not considered to be racist or right. uh, xenophobic. You know, right. that, that's it. You know, we, we, we think about uh, the East as the Orient, you know, like the Orient Express. So things that come there are oriental. And when you tell people about Asian and you tell them, you know, it's, it's a bad thing about orientalism because you're agglomerating everybody under the same umbrella and there are different cultures, blah, blah, blah. Somebody from around here said, well, aren't you doing the same, just calling people Asian? And you're a bit, well, maybe, but sensitivities do change. And if people who are affected by this want this word, then we have to use that word. So it was a matter. And somebody on Facebook told me this, and I was a bit, okay, I'm just going to go with it. Uh, it wasn't somebody, uh, uh, somebody Asian, by the way. But it was a matter that it is a word, it is sensitive in the United States and Canada, in North America. You know, the word oriental is not something that you use. You use Asian because it yeah. is considered to be racist and colonialist and xenophobic. Fine. Right. I totally and completely respect and understand that. I get it. I really, really do. And somebody said, well, but what about a game that is based in real history? Of course, that goes out of the window. That, that's, that's bullshit. I don't, I don't yeah, care. I don't, we do have a lot of games that have that deal with um, point moments of history that have generated controversy correct. because of that decision made. Correct. So, so they they decide to change it, and somebody said, you know, the point is that you are affecting the sensitivities of the people you want to sell your game to. So it doesn't matter what it was like in history, and it doesn't matter. And I said, well, but what about these two consultants? And someone said to me, no, they should have hired some 
Japanese American people because they are the one who understand the sensitivity of the people who are going to read this. And I thought for a second, I thought, wait a minute, so the sensitivities of the public who are not from Asia themselves, but descendants, so they are Japanese Americans, they matter more than the sensitivities of the Japanese people who did the consultancy work. How is that meant to work? Now, I'm not judging it, okay? I'm not saying whether it, what, what is the right idea or not, because I haven't done any work like that. In fact, I, I restrain myself from writing about places near me and around my culture to make sure that I don't fuck it up. But what I'm trying to say is that I don't think there is an easy solution. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all. And I don't think that there is always a 100% right way to do it. You can always piss off someone. The point is to find out and realize and figure out if the people you're pissing off, they are being pissed off with a good reason, regardless of your efforts. And if they are pissed off with good reason, then you have to do something to do repair work for that. So these people who were pissed off with James's decisions, they were pissed off with good reason. It doesn't matter that he was suggested, you know, this is okay, do a disclaimer. They were pissed off with good reason. Reparations must be made. If they have been pissed off because, oh, instead of having Pizarro, you could have had... His Made up somebody. Yeah. Then it's a bit, well, no, because the point is to have a historical figure. Can you give me somebody else? No, then that's it. Done. Yeah, like how, yeah. But the question is, of course, is always the thing is, if you were doing like this, we have there's been a couple games that have come out that have been historical, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 1812 the Invasion of Canada, which have um, Native Americans, Aboriginals on the cover uh, and so forth. And we have and because there's a difference between games like we obviously we, we saw it uh, recently with um, Toscini's games, right? Not, ignoring what he has said, mm-hmm. the fact that his games have been strangely weird misappropriations like it's one thing to have a game based off a mayan calendar and there's another thing to have based on a mayan calendar and then get the names wrong uh which was a controversy with the the original um zolkin and the fact that uh, there were actually incorrect references so if you're trying to go oh this is just like mayan culture like no actually it's not it's a it's a it's a mix mash of incan and mayan and unfortunately a lot of people think they're one and the same and they are absolutely not in any way, but there's that mis- miseducation uh, that people sometimes need clarification on. Uh, but the thing for me is that it's hard. It, like if you know, there's a part of me that's just like this is the reason why whenever I want to design a game, the last thing I want to do is do a game based on the past. Because if if you're like, well, if you're doing a game about that, how do you do a game about something in the past without glorifying something that was very negative about it? Well, right? I mean, that was the reason why it. I just don't want it. I'm not interested in those games at well, all. Well, okay, the, but there's a way you can do it. I mean, I don't know how this new expansion for Viticulture works. I don't know how Viticulture works. I have, I have not played it. Uh, but you know, if instead of having those conquistadors there as to somebody that you partner with, they have been the villains. You know that they take away from you, and there are two cards that appear as a war as the uh, game engine for taking away land or take away resources I see your point. Yeah. then I would be happy with that you know because they are not it's the fact you... that you have to ally yourselves correct. with the conquistadors correct so, so he, he, uh, let me throw you a positive and this is them becoming me being selfish so obviously I have a game called Naramata that's finally getting coming out here probably in the next month and Naramata is a uh, is a local 
I don't know the the tribe because obviously we don't see Native Americans in Canada. This is Aboriginal. Uh, this is uh, Native Canadian. Sometimes you know the you know Native Aboriginal are the correct terminology. So that I, so if I say it's not Indian and it's not Native American because we're in Canada, but there's a local tribe in that region and that name Naramata is slightly. It's a weird bastardization in the same way that Canada is a bastardization mm -hmm. of an Indian word that nobody remembers. Um, it's 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 the same way where Naramata is 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 a very weird uh, mispronunciation of a word, which some people say never actually existed. Uh, but that whole region, uh, like so many regions, were was once claimed territory that was owned by one or several of these these tribes, and there's been a lot of um, uh, it's, it's reparations that have made uh, just recently even. Uh, you know, re taking parks that that had a colonial name and renaming it a local name, an actual tribal name. We've done that in my hometown. Uh, but when I was advertising about the game in the in a Facebook group that was tied to the town, that's 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 like Naramata is a very is basically a village, and it's called Naramata Wine Country, even though half of the wine country is actually in Naramata and the other half is in the much larger town of Penticton. Uh, but Naramata is, is kind of, it's like the word Band-Aid. It's, it's the euphemism that's the term applied to that entire region. Uh, even because no one separates Penticton wine country with Naramata wine country because it's a road. And at some arbitrary point, you cross a border, but you never know it. So everyone, everyone always talks about it. And it's called the Naramata Wine Bench Association. And all the wineries on that road are on that. It's not, there's not a Penticton wine bench and a Naramata wine bench. It's just the Naramata Bench Association with all the wineries. So, this region was local territory and it was eventually appropriated and it was turned into farmland, but then that farmland was eventually turned into a wine, uh, a wine country that's now completely covering the entire landscape. Uh, so I was advertising in this protecting in this Penticton Facebook group and, um, it and because the Facebook group has like 20,000 people, and I was like, Well, this is and, and they they take ownership of it that for them it's something that they they they, they love Naramata wine country, it's as much as Penticton as is Naramata. So I, I posted about uh, about the game, and you know, obviously, the, the you know, it's it's was an extremely well received um, uh, post, and I had a bunch of people post on it, and, and you know, and they're immediately became somebody who made a post they're trying to see here um i'm trying to see exactly what somebody said and it was a bizarre thing and a lot of people um i'm trying to see the update that somebody made that um that was a bit surprising and I don't know, maybe they deleted their post, but it was something where they were talking about, and they were calling out a couple of things. One was the fact that this game does not make any mentions of the fact that this is previously owned Aboriginal land that was taken uh, by the Canadian government and, we, and, and then was turned into farmland and turned into wine country. And the fact that um, there is still this controversy around the land and the fact that there are wineries uh, that are owned uh, by, but the point is that it ultimately after the argument came down, it all came down to the fact that there was no mention at all 
about the local Aboriginal impact and the element. And my response was, it's a game about wine tourism. If I was talking about colonization, politics, or something like that, I could see why I would be responsible. But it's kind of like, there's a game about Tuscany. Are we not going to go into the history of Tuscany? Like, no, that's that's not what the game is about. It's the game is is a wine tourism game about the modern uh, region. I didn't feel that I was I, I needed to go into the political atmosphere of the region or diving into the impact that the environmental impact that the, that the, that wine fields have. And I felt like what, what like why would I have to go through all that? And eventually the conversation eventually fell out and that person stopped kind of having a conversation. But I was surprised, like, did I have to no. head that kind of controversy at the past? Like, obviously this person was upset. Do I use that justification of having to go in and I guess to do, do, do what Jamie did no, and have no, no, to okay. rebuild? And... Okay, but let, let's, let's, let's make clear one thing. You yeah. don't have to do anything you don't want to do. So if you don't want to go into the past, that's absolutely fine. If you want to, if Jamie had wanted to say, oh, you know what, well, we've done it, you know, the historical figures, you can live with it, that happened, no, sorry. He, he could have done that, would be perfectly entitled to do so, and then, you know, face the wrath and the consequences, because that's, that's, that's what we do. You could have gone and said, oh, my God, how dreadful I am going to go into you know, publishing a book on the history of Naramada County and the tribes around here and how they were completely obliterated and how, you know, fucked up they've been throughout, blah, 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 whatever. You could have done that as well. But as you said, you know, you, you have your, your reasons. Um, so if that's what you want to do, that's absolutely fine. Uh, do I think it would be a good idea to try and at least acknowledge what people have gone through so they can you can uh, you know at least people who play the game raise awareness of what's been going on that would be good it wouldn't be a bad thing to do do you have to do it no can you afford to do it if you can maybe you should if you cannot well lesson learned for the next time you make a board game by yeah. Aramata Y County that's it all the expansion done so here, here, here's the post. I found it. So, so this person says, not to be racist, but how many natives live around here than black people and we still don't make the cut? Open your eyes, folks. We are here and we haven't gone anywhere. We have been here before. All of you, maybe one day we will be included right just to have had a say something because you know a little discriminatory right being native and all. Not, not the greatest sentence structure in the world. And we were all trying to understand the context um, one person was commenting. So one person's theory was the fact that the cover of Naramata, which I have here, um, you know, it's called Naramata. Uh, we have a, you know, obviously we have a, a person of color and a white person on the cover and that, and the, the cover say, well, maybe they wanted to have a native person on the cover. I'm like, do I do I do I need to have thirty five different people on here? I mean, I, no, 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 but that, we, that, that but that's another point. Okay, I understand this person's concern. So I understand well, we that we we we, we, we didn't actually understand exactly what the concern was. I, I do, right? I do understand. I mean, okay. if if somebody that you have lived and your uh, your ancestors have lived in that place, and you belong to the people who used to own the land or who have a greater claim than any white person have to to the land of Naramata. Um, I can understand is that, um, dudes, you know, we, we've been here. Why, why, why haven't you named us? Why haven't you in any way, you know, 
reference does. Now, I can understand that person saying, I want to have visibility. Now, I exist, I live here, and yet your game has in their cover, in their game itself, people who have way less history than me. I want to be there. Now, I should be there right. because that is about my land. I understand them wanting that. I, I yeah. get it. I really get it. Yeah. See, for my situation, obviously, um, I liked the fact that when I get asked it to do the illustration and he volunteered to have a person of color and I really appreciated that and I thought it was really good. And But like so one of the comments was the fact that, you know, you have a white person and a black person on this cover. Why don't you have an Aboriginal person? Because they have a large po population uh, demographic in that area. There's actually quite a few wineries that are owned by Aboriginals. Uh, indigenous World Wineries, uh, in Kameep, uh, which are two fantastic wineries in, in that uh, region, not in Naramata. They're actually outside Naramata. One's in Kelowna, one's in, uh, one's in Osoyoos. Uh, that being said, if I did an Osoyoos expansion, these wineries would obviously want to be included. Um, but it's one of those situations where um, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like one of the things when I did, uh, where I had, uh, I allowed people to buy uh, into, they, they, could, they could put themselves on a tourist card, right? And I mentioned that they put themselves on a tourist card and almost immediately I noticed that everyone that was buying tourist cards were white. So I'm like, okay, I need to add in more cards. I need to create some variety. And I reached out to a bunch of people, Jeremy Howard, a bunch of other people in the game industry. I thought it'd be cool just to reach out to people in the game industry and go that, that were people of color or were just not white people. And so we had some non-binaries. We had uh, actual, actual uh, same-sex couples on, and we created a nice little variety. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, like I said, off the top of my head, you're looking at it, there's no one that is there's people that are look clearly look Asian. People look clearly look of uh, different ethnicities. I don't have someone that clearly looks like they're Aboriginal. I have almost every other one, but I don't have that because it's just I had a certain number of cards and I was trying to fill them up with people. I never had a situation where. Uh, but I also say that I go, I go, but I go. Outside of certain features, I don't know because I have several many friends that are Aboriginal and. Sometimes people people look at them and go, well, you know, this person's obviously from India. Like, no, that person's Aboriginal. I have friends. Some of my closest friends are are Aboriginal, and they have to tell people that they're Aboriginal because there's absolutely no no no. There's no, it's very hard to categorize. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I've always I could never figure out. And uh, you know, being uh, when I was a child, how people could be could, could be racist to people of Jewish descent because I, I as 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 a child. I literally could not figure out how they were telling how they can go. Well, this person's Jewish and this person's not Jewish. I'm like, how the fuck do you even know. like? I know, but then people and then then I, I became like, no, no. If you have people that are all identical, they'll find some physical attribute to pick out and make that person inferior, which shows you the flaws of the human race in general. But it's one of those situations. I'm kind of getting off topic with Jamie. Was, was the fact that you 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 there. You're gonna piss off some people. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just almost a way around that. And the question is, in, in my side, it's like, do you piss off someone and go, okay, but I don't mind getting get, getting that at person angry. Like when someone reviewed uh, uh, Amethyst and he complained that um, it was woke and was very obviously making white males the bad guys. And I'm like, I don't mind pissing you off. I was okay. Yeah, Let's but that, that that's 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 a target. That's that's fine. Again. It's, it's 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 a different situation. I don't I don't think they can I don't think they can compare. I think it's a matter of evaluating 
uh, how much harm it's been done and whether you can afford to and you can do something and if actually if you want to do it maybe you yeah. maybe you don't want to do it you know maybe i mean i, I think for, for going going back to naramata that it would be great to have an expansion on you know ages of naramata and, and figure out what was going on whenever and involve these people you know and tell them look this is your heritage this is your culture what would you like to do let's let's design this yeah and see what and happens. i think if it was something that was relative to the region but I picked Naramata just because I wanted a wine tourism game. And that was, I could have made an Osoyus. I could have made an Oliver. I could have called it Kelowna. I could have called it Variety. But Naramata was one of the few regions that in today's modern vernacular is 100% associated with wine. Um, Osoyus has some fruit and so forth. Mm -hmm. But Osoyus and Oliver are basically similar. But Naramata is one of the few regions in BC, which it's 100% it's wine with no exception. And that's why I decided to, to make it focus specifically on Naramata. Plus, from a name perspective, Osoyus uh, doesn't really roll off the tongue. I picked Naramata because it, wrote, it, it was phonetically very easy to remember. When I do, if I decide to do something like Osoyus uh, as an expansion, yeah, there are a large variety of, of different ethnicities running wineries in that region, and I would absolutely love to focus on them. But my priority was simply making a wine tourism themed game. And, and so it's one is, of those situations well, that fine. when you're dealing with yeah, when you're dealing with history, you like Jamie knew this is going to be an issue because of the way they yes. designed it. Let's hire somebody up. They said do this, and then somebody said that wasn't enough. But that's the thing, and I think that's where you you, you hit the nail on the head. Jamie was dealing with history. You are not. Yeah. I mean, you you are dealing. That's like if you make a game about uh, I don't know. Um, what to say about um, coffee making, so as in being a barista. Oh, yeah, coffee. Jesus, holy, wow. You know, somebody as in being a barista in a bar and how to make a competition of baristas in a bar and somebody complained that you're not acknowledging all the damage and all the heartache that coffee uh, harvesters go through. That's, that's not... The point of the game i understand it but i can you you made a hundred percent point there i think that yeah if someone made a game about coffee roasters and so forth that would be tricky because there is a correct. lot of controversy around around the exportation exactly. of coffee so you didn't make a if you had made a, a, a naramata was a game in which you start with the naramata region 300 years ago and you have uh through over six turns of 50 years each turn, you have to make a winery and see where you take it in 300 years, and you have not included indigenous people, then I would say, you are an asshole. Yeah. I think, I think that yeah, no, as someone who knows the history, who actually went and did the research, the, the asshole game would be, uh, this is the narrow matter region, and the whole objective is to, is to take over the region and convert it into wine fields. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> now that would be a fucking awful game to make. <laughs> You know, this is the game where you have to claim territory. It's a worker placement, and you have to then claim your territory and turn the whole region into a wine country. Exactly, and get um, and get workers. You know, the people who live there who are already around there get get them into becoming workers for next to no pay at all. 
You know, that, that yeah. would be wow. What a that game. Would, yeah, even even I am aware of that. That would, that would throw up a lot of red flags. Now, the other point is, now this is, now once again, this is me bringing up the conversation in order to... to we need to, to actually, we need to start bringing it to an end. We've been going for an hour plus all the hour of the interview. So this is the longest podcast episode we've ever recorded. Well, maybe this is going to be a part two thing. Maybe we talk about that and we talk about the details in a second. Maybe you have two episodes worth. But I wanted to throw one final question which was, and this is not me trying to say a gotcha. I'm I literally proposing once again, a question that people had specifically in the comments on the video on the, on the finger themer. And this was brought up not once, but several times that the reason one of the subject of course, was the, the, the detestable um, uh, performances of these conquerors, conquerors and colonizers in the past, mm -hmm. and that we need to stop making games that involve colonization and conquest as a mechanic because it turns it into something that's glorifying it Correct. but the question came up which was on this thing how does this compare to so many other games that have embraced it and primarily it's the, the one game they brought up were viking themed games like beast for odin vikings are notoriously for being militaristic conquerors and colonizers and so forth why does games like Feast for Odin get a pass? And that's like I said, I'm not even I'm not even posing from my own point of view. There were at least three comments on this on this forum where people were asking, "You did a review on Feast for Odin. Like there, there was, you did a review on Feast for Odin. Why didn't you go after Feast for Odin for okay. its subject matter? And why did you go? Of course, the reason why, of course, is they're not, you know, being someone from Venezuela, one of the creators, like she has a personal investment in the history of the region not just that they still to this day suffer the consequences from those conquests yeah exactly to this day i mean the damage is still happening hundreds of years after pizarro left yeah the vikings not so much so there is a difference no, you're 100% right. I just wanted to bring that up because that was the primary comment. I 100% yeah. agree. Uh, the thing is, it's, it'd, be, it'd be like me a game about well, South America, but dealing with this is a this is a colonization game that and players play either Portuguese or Spanish as they conquer Brazil. Like, I'm like, if someone says, "I would make this game," I'm like, oh, get a good mechanic and throw that theme out because I'm not gonna touch that. Exactly. I mean, there are ways to do it. You know, the other day, somebody made a review of a game about the Civil War in Spain. Right. They made games about the Civil War in Spain all the time, Republicans versus the fascists, hmm. all the time. It's a sensitive topic in my country. It happens all the time. Why is the difference? Because both sides have the same ability to win or lose. It's, it's got nothing to do with history. It is to do a game that you've just wrapped in something. Could you do the same with, with the game from South America? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. Would I think, be, the, I think the question is, yeah, how, but, when do games become entertainment and when should games become educational? When they... Be, well, oof. Like this War of Mine, for example, is not a fun game to play because it's trying to be educational. It's, it's going to piss people. It's going to upset people. But that was their intent. They want to show you what it's like to be in a war zone. Yeah, but and you to know, be what? innocent civilians. I think that is a question that we need to answer at a different podcast because we've been going for an hour, <laughs> and yeah. uh, if we continue doing this, we're going to be here until well, in my case, three a.m. and I need to sleep. So, uh, and we've been going for a long time. So anyway, um, I think we should. Yeah, say definitely goodbye. a good point that uh, so definitely uh, 
you know, I, we've talked about artistic representation in games before, and I'm sure it's something we will return to. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And, um, you know, actually, maybe we should talk at some point as to what, what, what themes are permissible and how to approach controversial themes. I think that's a definite good topic for a future one, because I can ask questions going, why, why did this person choose this theme of all subjects? Why? Maybe we should bring someone theme? along, you know, Let, let's talk about this in private and let's see who we can bring to actually make this. You know, there, there is a topic that I would like to discuss at some point, which is slavery. You know, because it's, it's a hot topic and people don't want to have slavery. And I'm a bit, I need to understand this better because, you know, Spanish have been slavers in the past, not massively, but we have been. And of course, it's a bad thing and blah, 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 disgusting, horrible, and please never do it. And it should always be portrayed as something evil. But I need to understand better. I need to understand yeah. better. And I think there's an awful lot of people need to understand better about an awful lot of topics not not just that so yeah because obviously we have we have freedom the underground railroad board game bingo and that is an amazing game have you played it i have not but i obviously wow. there's 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 a game where you've got to be damn sure you get that right like you have to, oh over over got that absolutely right i can tell you i have never played the game where i finished the game and was left with such a sense of loss. I, I, you know the concept of bleeding in role-playing games? Of what? A bleed. Bleed. In role-playing games is when you play in a game and whatever happens to your character actually comes into your real life and you oh, suffer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had that with that game. You know, when, when, you, when you finish the game and you see how many people died so these other people could get out, that, I promise you, is devastating really yeah. devastating that game is a fucking masterpiece but anyway we'll talk about that another go. time definitely a subject for a future future podcast absolutely yes uh people thank you for listening this long because this has been probably one of the best episodes we've ever had uh, and i'm really proud and pleased with that we've had this conversation and this interview jamie was an absolute gem of a man i didn't know him before and I really hope I can get to meet him again because he was adorable in every single sense of the word. Awesome. Yeah, he was great. Great, great. Hopefully we'll be able to bring other interviews like that. Yes, great guy. But until the next time, please get in touch. Podcast at gmsmagazine.com. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Yes, just so you know, Chris and I are still planning on going into the Twitch to birth uh, verse and do this live at some point. I don't know when we're going to do it. I don't care. Uh, whenever. But I think it would be great fun to do it live when we can manage to get to the point. We are recording every Tuesday at 9 p.m. my time sharp. And that would be great. But until that happens, I think it's going to be very difficult. But we would love to do that anyway. Send us your comments. And I don't know why I'm not shutting up. <laughs> Somebody needs to eat. Anyway, you can find me, uh, Chris, on DSX Machina, on uh, Twitter, YouTube, uh, and Facebook. Bye. Bye-bye.